Why, hello. It shows that this audio finds you either gripping with the end of the year or exuberant with its passing. Either way, thank you for letting bandwidth coast to coast invade your auditory cortex. We are fundamentally the same beings as we were in ancient times. I was actually just talking with a friend of mine about the most recent Pompeii discoveries, and the conversation quickly landed at how we are essentially the same beings as then, only our technology and some of our culture has changed. I would extend that with technology comes an influence into our culture, which then influences back the prominence or course of that technology, so on and so forth. From either sacking of cities, or the increased comfort or size of the luxury elite, or in the way in which I would posit technology has been most influential, that being an increase and disbursement of widespread luxury goods into the mainstream. The problem, insofar as I see it, is that we haven't transcended our base human traps, at least not collectively, at least not for a sustained enough period of time to influence the course of our species and have us land at a new plateau, thus escaping the seemingly inevitable traps. I really like how my guest puts it. He said when we find ourselves at another nexus point of success is when we are most likely to become victims of it. Or more directly how he puts it, confidence in success is the harbinger of failure. For certainty alone leaves you blind, to say nothing of another point made, when reaching a, quote, success, what and why you were fighting or lost. And the struggle to get there gives you such relief when it's over, that resting on those laurels is so tantalizing a thought, it becomes the aim. Or to steal from episode 8 again, in response to my thought that humans are comfort-obsessed beings, generational great historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto responds with something I think about daily. Comfort is the enemy of well-being. With that comfort we find ourselves in, it sparks many a movement towards conservatism, towards maintaining the status quo. But again, to highlight a point my guest makes in this episode, an effort to be more conservative tends to lead to many radical things. And how frequently, it's a rediscovery of the past and an effort to preserve it that leads to an upset of the status quo anyways. Hold on to that thought for future because it's going to be something I already planned on expanding upon before I even talked with my guest. If you couldn't deduce from the pod thus far, I thoroughly enjoy the art of conversation. How the way one thinks, what occurs in their thoughts, and how that plays back and forth with those that you're conversing with, and what ultimately comes out of it. This episode was a wildly fast and generative conversation that I've listened to several times over and over and found new nuggets of gold each time. So much of it, that I struggled for weeks with what to say in this message. Instead, I'm going to frame it this way. Us as a species frequently find ourselves to be trapped by the comforts and successes we achieve in order to have them then, in order to then have them collapse inwards onto ourselves and our societies, radically and chaotically transforming them. And that this trap, whether it's the Gallic people on the borders of the Roman Empire or the global world touched by American culture and blue jeans, It's as old as time. We can fight it in an act of conservatism, but it's likely to lead us again to very radical ends nonetheless. Where the likely best course of action and least likely to happen is to never stop trying to achieve the next success. To not rest upon your laurels, but recognize that everything is in a constant state of needing improvement and needing effort. Let me read you this quote from Wilhelm von Humboldt that my guest from episode two, Rowan Price, recently sent to me. 
as soon as one stops searching for knowledge, or if one imagines that it need not be creatively sought in the depths of human spirit, but can be assembled extensively by collecting and classifying facts, everything is irrevocably and forever lost. Now that I've given this all a thorough framing, my guest for this episode is Philip Parker, historian and author of History of World Trade and Maps, The Empire Stops Here, as well as many other books. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Without further delay, my conversation with Philip Parker. Hope you enjoy. All right. So thank you very much for, for talking with me. Um, just so we have it, would you mind just introducing yourself and then uh, I'm going to kick us off. I'm uh, Philip Parker. I'm a historian. I uh, specialize in the late antique and early medieval world, but I have a kind of a wider remit. Um, I, kind of, I, I dabble in a lot of areas and, and particularly uh, maps and the history of cartography. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm not sure if many people outside my wife know this, but I'm a huge geek for maps. Uh, and when I told her that I was going to talk with you and one of your specialties was maps, she was like, oh my God, that's got to be so exciting for you. It's like, yes, it is. Um, so a question that I ask everybody as I'm on their first guest uh, is what do you do that makes you happy? So I'm going to ask you that and then we'll kick on off and talking about maps and all the like. I guess something that I, I can guarantee um, will make me happy is, is browsing in one of my favorite bookshops. Um, actually, actually, one of my very favorite bookshops is it's a travel bookshop um, just uh, close to here called Dawn Books, um, which is, you know, which is filled with travel books, books about travel, books about the history of particular countries and maps as well. So um, it's, it's just there's, there's an endless world of possibilities there. You know, you can just pick up almost any book off the shelf and be utterly engaged um, with it. So so there and some of my other favorite bookshops, just just, you know, half an hour there is, is, is guaranteed to restore my mood to an adequate level of happiness. I like that. That's a, a great thought and something I, I, I think I just realized now that I'm missing quite a bit with COVID <laughs> is to being able to just sit and peruse. Well, we were, you know, we were, we were denied that completely for about four months until um, retail opened up here and, and um, they, you know, they've taken all kinds of precautions. And so now at the moment, um, they're, they're all open. So I can, I can browse to my heart's content. That's, that's great to hear. <laughs> Um, so I, I, there's a lot of topics that I would love to kind of touch upon, uh, with you. Cause you, you have like a very wide breadth of, of interests. Um, so I want to kind of ask this first one is what got you into your, your, one of your more recent, if not your most recent, uh, books on world trade. And I was just curious what, uh, what brought you into that kind of space and, uh, yeah, what what brought you there? I'd actually um I'd actually already done um with that publisher a history of Britain and maps, and so the idea of looking at um history um through kind of uh, you know a series of episodes illustrated by maps was was already there, and I think it was really actually uh we I was kind of chatting with the publisher and we were talking about you know um 
the effect of COVID um, on, on the world economy. And, you know, in, in that conversation, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not the first time. Um, you know, look, look at the Black Death as, as the obvious example of an absolutely catastrophic pandemic situation. And, you know, how did that um, shape the world economy? How did that shape local economies? So from that, the sort of the germ of the idea um, grew pretty quickly into say, okay, what, what, about, what about world trade through that? What, what, what was most fascinating when you were uh, going through that? What did you kind of take away as like the biggest, especially with now? Cause like, you know, the, I study a lot in the ancient world and the thing to me that I find so interesting is how long it took ideas and goods to travel, you know, and now like the routes are just, they're much faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of almost look at it the other way around, um, which is to say, um, but actually, uh, you know, it's something I was aware of, but, you know, until you're focusing on a particular topic, you know, in depth and gathering together all of the information, it's, it's really um, sobering to realize that a lot of trade routes are of absolutely immense antiquity that, you know, we have, you know, sometimes we might have the idea that, okay, in, in the kind of Neolithic or pre-Neolithic age, um, you know, people were just kind of where they were and, you know, stuff arrived. Um, but you don't really focus on the way that actually, you know, that flint that traveled 500 miles, somebody or a series of people um, had to, you know, either either all in one go or over time, trade it, trade it for something else. So, you know, the lapis lazuli, which was kind of basically only obtainable from one mountain in Afghanistan, you know, it's, it still made its way to Egypt, um, you know, which is, you know, quite a, quite a distance. So, you know, there were people um, intrepid enough to fulfill that need, you know, even um, in that period of deep antiquity. So although, yeah, it's true that now, um, you know, kind of, you know, something gets, you know, from Tokyo to San Francisco, you know, 10 hours later, it's there. Um, and that in itself is astonishing. But all the same, kind of, you know, in that deep past, even though it took three months um, for something to traverse the Silk Road from Chang'an in China to end up in Baghdad, you know, all the same, you know, it happened, you know, that was a huge achievement. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's almost mind-blowing, you know, the fact that uh, we talk about the fact, you know, kind of knowledge of paper transmitted itself from China over the Silk Route. But when you look at it from the, the trading perspective, actually, you know, that's a kind of, it's a pretty astonishing thing um, that that technology, you know, um, 2,000 years ago, you know, was still able to percolate that distance. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, I, I wonder, I think about this sometimes, is how much because of, like what you said, something can go from Tokyo to San Francisco in 10 hours. I wonder how much of the, the novelty of that wears, wears at whatever it is, right? Like if you see something in the ancient world and you, you have an idea of like, I have no concept of what, actually where this came from. So almost like the, the novelty and the, the value you put into it, I wonder if it was greater than where it is now, where it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I just got something airlifted, you know, from, from San Francisco the other day. I mean, I mean sure. I mean, you know, a, a lot of societal and cultural developments are, are driven precisely by the search for novelty. And it becomes um, progressively more difficult as, as the world, you know, knits itself together, you know, to find that novelty by, you know, by the 15th century, well, end of the 15th century, with a kind of, you know, the European advent in the Americas, you know, the, a world system is beginning to develop, but, you know, all the same, there are large patches of it which are not in constant contact or don't have the capacity to be in contact with one another. You know, but, but now, um, you know, you can, uh, you know, with a, a couple of clicks, you can, you can, you know, you can see on Google Maps or on Google Earth, anywhere in the world, it's, you know, 
the, the search for novelty has to go even further into kind of virtual domains. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if I was, um, you know, living in kind of 14th century Paris, um, you know, the idea of an elephant would be a quite extraordinary thing. And, you know, actually, you know, actually seeing these exotic beasts, you know, did begin to turn up in the menageries of um, kind of royal palaces, you know, actually seeing or, or you know, talking to somebody who'd seen one um, would be an absolutely extraordinary thing. And I, I suppose it is, you know, I suppose it is a thing that we've lost, um, you know, that physical wonder at something. I mean, I recall um, the first time that um, I saw the pyramids um, in Egypt and um, I was very excited, you know, approaching um, Giza, going in the bus, I think it was a bend we go around and there are the pyramids. And for a millisecond, my first thought was, that looks like the pyramids um, because, you know, I'd seen images of them so many times that the reality simply matched precisely what I expected. So yeah, you know, that we have lost a bit of that novelty and wonderment because we just can um, see and reach out to so many things. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it, I think a lot of things is arcs of kind of humanity or maybe even just tropes is kind of always becoming a victim of our own success in a lot of ways. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's just kind of emerging quality of a lot of things, but um, I, I definitely think that that's, your, your point is well taken that, you know, we have to kind of keep searching for more and more novelties. Um, and to go back a little bit, like your, how you said that how some of these trade routes are so ancient. Um, I just finished uh, a book. Um, I have a previous guest I have is Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Um, mm-hmm. And I just finished his book, Amerigo. And uh, I, I love his snarky writing. I think it's really entertaining. And, and he's, quite, he's great. <laughs> yeah. He's quite on the button with a lot. Um, but there, there was a point that he made in it and, was just essentially the kind of meandering almost of these trade routes and, and kind of the finding these trade winds. And it was all just kind of by happenstance and they never really knew where they were. And, you know, and at least in Amerigo's case, he was kind of always lying about where he thought he knew he was versus where he really was. Um, and what it got me thinking was, you know, maybe it was a century before, or maybe even sooner than that, there was the Chinese emperor that went on like the grand parade or what did he call the grand? It was like a grand gift giving where he, sailed around all around the South China Sea and all the way through, I think he even got to the Suez Canal and, and whatnot and, and just giving gifts. And then, you know, I think it was the, the preceding emperor or maybe towards the end of it, decided to shut off China. Um, and what it got me thinking is, you know, one, like, you know, they could have continued to keep going, right? Like they obviously had the means to do that. They just culturally decided not to. But two, you know, how much to your point, how much these trade routes and ideas, like, you know, almost almost all of the agriculture that took off in Europe came from the East to West. Right. And Jared Diamond really does a great job in his book on that. Um, and the interconnectivity of, of us as a species has been one of constant flux and constant, you know, sharing and appropriating for as long as we have history. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, um, there's a lot there, but to take, um, take the Chinese um, example first, which, you know, which is, it's very um, particular. It was, um, um, the emperor sent out, he, he was this guy, um, uh, Admiral called Zheng He, um, who um, went on seven voyages and, and did it. He got to um, almost to the Suez Canal and, and right away down um, the coast of East Africa, as far as um, modern day Kenya and, and Tanzania. And, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't exactly trading, you know, in, in the sense that we under, understood it. It was, you know, it was an exertion of, of power. I mean, the, you know, as, as far as the Chinese emperor was concerned, frankly, you know, not, there was nothing outside China that really could, you know, 
could enlarge the wealth that he'd amassed. So it was really about showing how powerful um, China was, which is something that you know trading nations do <laughs> to an extent today. Um, and um, so you know he sent this admiral on seven voyages to kind of establish a tributary relationship. And um, the people that he visited gave gifts, um, which the Chinese took to be an acknowledgement of you know, recognizing China as, as their overlord, which was not really the intention of the gift giver at all. The intention of the gift giver was that these people would go away if you gave them something nice. Um, and um, you know, amazing things went back, including um, a giraffe, um, which was, I think, the, the first one ever seen in China. And um, it was, um, there's, there's a mythical Chinese beast called, I think, a Qilin, um, which looks a bit, it's something with a very long neck, it looks a bit like a giraffe and it's incredibly lucky. So when it arrived back in, in, in China, um, there was immense excitement that this, this mythical beast had, had finally been found under the reign of this particular emperor, and, and it was um, intended to be very auspicious. But Zheng he, he almost, you know, he went so far in, um, down the coast of East Africa that had he gone a little bit further, um, and you know, technologically, there's, there's no reason why he couldn't have. Um, you know, it would have been the Chinese and, and, and not the Portuguese who first rounded, um, you know, the kind of Cape of Africa. And you know, the Chinese would have. I mean, there there are some historians who allege that you know, they did, but you know, that would have got into the Atlantic, um, you know, first. And you know, what impact would that have had? You know, it's a kind of, it's a kind of great what if. So I mean, there's a lot of kind of chance in this, you know. Um, like you said, you know, America Vespucci, he sort of, you know, he wandered around getting a little bit lost and sort of came across some things which turned out to be useful. Um, the Vikings um, discovered um, Iceland and they, particularly Greenland. Um, they discovered by getting lost. I mean, you know, they're known as enormously effective navigators, but you know, from the saga evidence that we have, uh, the, those who are alleged to have come across the the coast of Iceland and Greenland first got there because, or at least they said. Um, they didn't know where they were going. So, you know, these things, there's a lot of chance going on there. But, you know, trade, it's, you know, it's a bit like water. Um, you know, <clears throat> it's heading somewhere anyway. You know, there's a need, um, there's a kind of impetus. So we can't say, you know, who's going to be the person or even necessarily which part of a culture is going to be, the, who's going to transmit agriculture, who's going to get around the coast of um, Africa first. But, you know, probably we can be pretty sure that, that somebody is, is going to do it. You know, if there's if there's a will on one side and there's a need on another side, eventually those two ends are going to match. That sparked a thought that I, I don't know if I've ever had before, and that's almost as if uh, us as a species. Okay, so I know like Jared Diamond and his guns, germs, and steel, and it's it's a a common question of you know why was it that Europeans were the ones that colonized kind of the whole world and and all of that. That's that's essentially the onus of that book, um, and I know it's an ongoing question. But the, the thought that you kind of sparked in me now, which is, it's, it's almost like us as a collective culture of species, you know, we're working, in, you know, from the agriculture means that went east to west and, you know, from China, China could have if they culturally decided that they wanted to, to pursue conquest or any number of reasons of, of what they would have. But obviously they had a large empire with enough resources. They didn't really have the means to do that where Europe had... Um, Felipe, Felipe didn't like when I used the word friction, but I'm going to use it again. They had the cultural friction between the different groups and kind of the legacy of, of I, almost the fall of Rome, which, which created a power vacuum that created all these type of warring groups and, and, you know, sometimes even whole territories that are empty that created, you know, migrations and whatnot that kind of sparked that. But it's almost like it's someone was going to get there and it was because us collectively were, were moving towards that, not necessarily that there was one that was kind of at the tip of the spear. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, you know, far be it for me to disagree with Felipe on the use of the word friction, but I think, um, you know, there's, there's such a thing as um, being too successful as a civilization or a culture, you know, re reaching a point at, of sort of equilibrium, you know, perhaps great cultural advancement, perhaps great wealth, um, that leaves you um, maladapted um, to face a new challenge. So, you know, the, you know, the Maya in Central America, for example, um, you know, incredibly successful, and you know, you know, people argue endlessly about exactly why um, the Maya cities, uh, you know, experienced this enormous collapse uh, around about the kind of beginning of the 10th century. But you know, it's likely to be because they became so successful that their population grew um, beyond the bounds of the resources uh, to support it. But they'd also developed a culture which depended upon, you know, it being that large, and so it collapsed. Um, you know. The other way around, um, in Europe, um, the comp you know the competition between societies, between nations as they emerged, which was you know quite violent, um, you know resulted in uh, societies which needed to develop um, stratagems to fight more, to develop the ability to fund armies, which actually made Europeans you know very adapted for kind of you know violent confrontations with cultures outside, and you know. Um, you know, gunpowder, which was a Chinese invention, um, you know, was not put initially to the same kind of amazingly effective use, um, you know, as kind of, you know, personal infantry weapons um, that the Europeans did, because, you know, the Europeans were fighting amongst themselves an awful lot. So, you know, there, there was this incentive, you know, with the resources they had, which were not as, you know, kind of large as the Chinese, to, to do as much as you can. So, you know, um, something like, you know, the Dutch or the British are kind of arch examples of this kind of, you know, relatively small societies, which become, um, you know, in the case of the Dutch from the 16th, 17th century, just amazingly effective. And, and that's because, you know, they, they, they found a way to leverage their quite kind of exiguous resources to an amazing extent. And, you know, and that's something that happens so much in Europe because, you know, things went very badly wrong in Europe after the, you know, the collapse of the Roman Empire. It, you know, it took a long time. And, you know, all those iterations, all those struggles, you know, produced, um, in a way, kind of societies which were very, very honed um, to collide with other societies. Um, you, know, you know, it kind of, you know, bred a kind of almost kind of predatory mentality, which, you know, some other societies did not. Yeah, that's a, the predatory point, I think, is one that's a, it's a good one because of the fact that it... it, it so I, I've studied a lot of the Rome, ancient Rome, and I, I realized recently that both the Republic and Byzantium were two pieces that I kind of didn't hold enough attention to. Um, so lately I've been diving a lot into Byzantium um, and I'd most recently just kind of gotten, I'm, I'm decompressing or unpacking or whatever adjective you want to use, uh, kind of the structure of the state and the military and all that. Um, and to me, it was quite fascinating how different it was. And I talked with another author, uh, Steel Brand. He wrote this book, uh, Killing for the Republic. And I'm nearly finished with that. I, I'm, I had to put pause on it for, I'm reading a book for another guest. But uh, he, he dove into the makeup of the Roman Republican military and kind of the citizen soldiers that it creates. And that is a, such an amazing story of a victim of its own success where it's like you have this, this familial citizen soldier arrangement that then goes on to conquer, you know, most of the, the Mediterranean world, um, which could have been also because of the friction between the, you know, the Punic empire and, and Carthage and all that. Um, and 
then that kind of transforms itself into like, well, now we have all of these other soldiers we can conscript from, you know, why, why do we have to be doing the fighting? And then that obviously leads to a collapse. And then you get to Byzantium and it's, they've kind of accepted that structure and, and they've kind of worked around it to, to kind of use the best of it. And, you know, there's commentary from emperors that, you know, like this, uh, I, I can't think of the region, but it was a mountainous region is like, that's the best area to get soldiers from because they're hardy and they're, you know, they're, they're tough. Uh, as opposed to the more, you know, coastal areas that are more cosmopolitan. And it, and it gets me to think of, you know, you're a victim of your own success, uh, and then you kind of transform into something else. But, you know, almost that medieval or, you know, late, an- late antiquity, um, buddy up in- even in- into the Renaissance, Europe was never really given that opportunity to be able to kind of rest on its laurels, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, with the Roman Empire, one of the yeah, I mean, extraordinary things which you, know, you will have been discovering there is that um, some version of the system um, survived for two thousand more than two thousand years. And uh, you know, when we you know give ourselves a pat on the back about how wonderfully successful our societies have been, and we think, well, you know, the British Empire lasted, well, you know, say, um, you know, from you know the early eighteenth century to kind of you know nine, the nineteen seventies, uh, you know, the kind of longest extent was two hundred years or so. That's an amazing achievement. It, it's kind of it's a tenth the period in which the Roman Empire um, grew, evolved, and collapsed. So you know, the Roman Empire, it, in its various forms, from you know from the Republic, um, you know, to the Principate, to the kind of Middle Empire, Late Empire, and then kind of Byzantium, um, you know, it, it did reinvent itself um, several times. It, it it had it had the capacity to do that. Um, you know, you know. Ultimately, you know, its adaptations led it into a kind of, you know, p- political, diplomatic, military cul-de-sac from which it could not escape. That, you know, ultimately, it faced forces for which it, you know, it, it needed uh, more military resources than it could muster itself, and so it had to rely on people outside who, you know, kind of in the end were not were not to be relied upon. Um, so it, it found itself in an impossible um, situation, but nonetheless defied the odds um, for several centuries. But um, you know, Byzantium, kind of Roman Byzantium, it, it was one sort of um, society in Europe. What we have is, you know, multiple, you know, we have 10, we have 12, you know, um, you know, kind of one of them fails, another one will rise. So kind of, you know, out of, out of that cauldron, you know, something, you know, something is going to bubble up. You know, one, one of the reasons that kind of Europe really prospered is this, you know, is this balkanization that um, the states which emerged were, um, it's a sort of, you know, historical Goldilocks zone in a way that, um, you know, they were neither too big nor too small. Um, you know, if, if they'd been too big, um, they might have found a perfect adaptation to one situation and then, you know, um, something would have developed and they'd have collapsed. If they were too small, you know, they would not be big enough to thrive and they would have been gobbled up by something else. But those kind of, those kind of middle ranking powers that you get in Europe, you know, like Spain, like France, like Britain, um, you know, to an extent, you know, even somewhere like Venice can count as a middle-ranking power, I think, um, by this definition. You know, there were enough of them that, you know, um, they could um, ad- adopt various uh, varying different strategies that, you know, one of them is going to prosper at any one time. If Sweden is down, and then Prussia is up. If France is down, then Britain is up, which um, actually perpetuates the conflict and the competition between them, you know, and out of that, you know, it's kind of, it, you know, it's a very human thing. We can see it on a personal level that, you know, um, you know, it's the competition, it, you know, it's the getting ahead that, you know, gets you to kind of, you know, refine your strategy, refine your tactics, learn new things. And, you know, it's the same with nations, you know, with, you know, with no competition at all, we end up, you know, we end up like Easter Island. Um, but, you know, kind of Europe, you know, those nations competing against themselves, you know, what you get, you know, the Industrial Revolution, you get, you know, kind of, you get that kind of imperial 
kind of outburst in the 19th century. Yeah, that's the, the comp- competition breeding success and then the type of competition and culture that kind of comes around it is all the emergent qualities and conundrums that kind of spark from there. Um, so with your like history of, of trade routes and, and uh, uh, maps and, and the like, um, would you say that uh, the Venetians and, and kind of those middle Italian states uh, played an out, outsized hand in uh, shaping those routes, at least as, for, as, as the way that we see them now? I think they played um, an invaluable role in kind of re- reconstructing um, a system which had more or less fallen apart, um, you know, in the late Roman Empire, which is the kind of, you know, Mediterranean trading zone. Now, obviously, um, a lot of that had been, um, you know, kind of um, occupied by the kind of the growth of the Islamic Empire, kind of Umayyad, Abbasids, and then the kind of, you know, when that broke apart into various um, kind of sub-states. And um, whilst, you know, trade has still gone on, it was, I think, really, you know, the Italian city-states who, who, who began, quite frankly, with piracy against um, North African Islamic states, but, you know, moved on um, quickly um, into trading with them. And so that, I think that played a kind of, you know, an invaluable role in kind of reigniting those trade routes and kind of, you know, um, sparking those trade routes kind of further east into life. You know, there was a kind of, you know, the Venetians were kind of, you know, they almost kind of monopolized things like the sugar trade into, um, into Europe or, and, um, and obviously kind of even more valuable than that, um, the spice trade into Europe. And the, those kind of spices have been, you know, absolutely kind of gobbled up by the Roman Empire. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, the supply kind of tended to dry up. And the Venetians, the Genoese, kind of slightly early on, the Pisans, um, you know, they began, you know, they began to trade very effectively um, with kind of Islamic powers um, further east. And that kind of, you know, that really got things going again. But more than that, I think, um, although, um, you know, various types of financial and kind of, you know, quasi and pseudo banking institutions had sort of, you know, had existed, um, the time of the Roman Empire, you know, kind of there are, there are things which um, approximate to checks um, kind of in Roman Egypt in the first century, um, kind of AD. Um, but it was, I think, um, you know, the early Italian um, city-states that um, really kind of began to bring that together into kind of, you know, knit um, trading with banking. Um, and um, so that the type of contract which spread risk um, across a number of merchants um, who kind of bought, you know, portions of a ship, um, kind of knitting that back to people on um, dry land who were actually kind of going to fund that. So it wasn't, it wasn't just the merchants themselves um, who took that risk in the kind of very early versions of it. So those things kind of, you know, coalesced together. So basically, um, it's, it's kind of really about leveraging. Um, the Venetians and the Genoese, particularly the Venetians, they were kind of able to leverage themselves financially. They were able to find a way um, effectively to spread the risk, to tr- you know, to trade more um, than, you know, a small city-state kind of, you know, on the face of it, had any right to do. And, um, you know, that really, um, you've got a virtuous circle there, because once everybody knows that the risk is lower, you know, investing in a Venetian, you know, financial trading project, um, you know, trading cotton to Egypt, more people want to do it. So they got more resources, and it grows. They have more trading outposts, um, you know, down the Adriatic, you know, it, you know, kind of they have a whole trading quarter in Constantinople. You know, it, it, it feeds in on itself. I mean, ultimately, of course, they will become, you know, the victims of their own success. You know, they will get involved in, you know, fights on the Italian mainland, which were incredibly expensive and draining. Um, their success will come to the attention of, you know, other predatory European um, powers who, you know, who want their pounds of flesh um, from this. And so, you know, gradually, the, you know, the competition grows and, you know, by the kind of, 
17th century, you know, the Venetian style is waning. But you know, for you know, for several centuries, you know, they're you know they're really carrying the flag as far as kind of you know the acme of kind of financial trading um, sophistication. That I like the acme. Uh... I was reading about, uh, from Felipe's book, I ended up doing a bunch on uh, Lorenzo, Lorenzo de' Medici, and I was really surprised by what I was learning as far as like the business and corp- I don't think they call them corporate, maybe they do call them corporations, I'm, I'm, it's too early, I'm, my memory is fading a bit, but uh, just kind of the business arrangements that they do uh, and kind of, so I, I do like transformation in, in business and that kind of software development consulting, that's what I do in my day job, and uh, reading the way that they were analyzing and and, and kind of like combing over the best ways to like get you know increase their investments or sp- like you said spread risk and kind of the, the white like hedging their bets uh even even down to you know when they've discovered the new world in the first you know couple of years people were like is this even worth spending the money to go out there to do it what are we going to get um and kind of reading those documents i was really thrown by by it i guess i, I one of the things i love reading history for is just how much my my misconceptions get right you know presuppositions get shattered right and then that kind of like leaves a whole new uh, landscape to kind of try to sort it all out um i i want to ask a question so i'm i'm really obsessed with culture i would say that's probably like one of my biggest obsessions um and if you had a muse what what about the culture that kind of came out of this you know almost barbarism or piratism in the north uh the north african coast uh how did that culture emerge into one of this type of you know, uh, almost cosmopolitan, I would say like very cosmopolitan in the sense of, you know, they, uh, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, like the Italian city states in the, in the early Renaissance and Renaissance area, they definitely had an air of, uh, sophistication that they like to present themselves as. Um, and they definitely, you know, had a business sense as well as they were kind of trying to position themselves as the, legacy of the Roman, you know, Republic. Um, and, and wh- my question really is what, how did this type of business economic, instead of saying like, we're going to take a very hard line military stance, we're going to try to hold land as opposed to what they really did, which is we're going to try to increase business and trade and use that as our leverage. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, the kind of transition, um, from the kind of medieval and late medieval world, you know, to, you know, kind of what for, for one of a better term, everybody has ended up calling kind of, you know, early modern, um, is is absolutely fascinating, and you know, in a in a way, it's um it's an example of um what I call sort of accidental radicalism. So um the kind of you know, in a way, the kind of search, the you know, wishing to be conservative, kind of ends up with kind of actually quite radical development. So um you know, kind of a, a, a cornerstone of medieval thought was that you know basically um, nothing should really change. You know, we, we need to hold on to, you know, kind of, you know, canon law, we need to hold on to, you know, how things were done in the past, you know, basically, um, if, if things are going to change with the kind of medieval attitude, things are going to change for the worse. So, you know, our, you know, what we need to do is to keep things um, the same. Um, in order to do that, we really need to understand how things were, you know, to kind of keep them on that level. But, um, that that leads you into kind of you know that leads you into changing things. So kind of um, interpretations of kind of biblical texts can lead you in kind of into different directions. Um, things you know you were you were talking about kind of the corporation um, before. So um, you know the idea of you know the church as a body, uh, 
you know, the church kind of exists, you know, separate from its members. So this leads you into the idea that, this, that there could be a legal entity which isn't actually people. Um, and, um, you know, that's what in the Middle Ages was called, you know, a corporation. So, you know, um, the fraternity of, you know, say X or Y, um, come, or, the, or a university comes not to be the people who are there at any one time, but there's something kind of overarching that, a, you know, a corporation which has a separate legal existence. Indeed, it comes to have separate legal rights. Um, so, you know, um, a city can claim separate legal rights, you know, as, as a kind of corporation. It's not just the people there, it, it sort of has a right to it. So this, this kind of, you know, begins to feed into notions of, you know, that, you know, the people of a country may have rights you know, separate from the actual people who are living there. So, you know, your attempt to be conservative there it begins to lead you into quite radical kind of philosophical um, notions. And with the Renaissance, um, you know, the idea that we want to preserve the past means we have to kind of look at the texts that we have. Um, now, actually, they didn't have very many um, kind of Roman kind of classical authors, very few Greek, a bit of kind of Aristotle, not very much Plato at all. Um, and, um, but, you know, they, they clung on to them. But um, what begins to happen is people, you know, begin not just monks in individual monasteries, but in, in um, 15th century Italy, people begin to look into the papal archives, archives of monastery scholars, to, you know, to find out kind of stuff the Romans have. And um, you know, this actually leads them on to a realization that, you know, actually, you know, the Romans had some pretty kind of, you know, um, um, radical kind of political ideals. They, you know, they discuss, they really discussed things, you know, they debated. So these kind of, um, these ideas kind of begin, you know, begin to bubble up. The idea that actually rediscovering the past in an effort to preserve it can actually um, kind of lead you to kind of upset the status quo. And that's what begins to happen um, in Italy in the 15th and 16th century, that, you know, the rediscovery of what really is, is trying to, you know, kind of seal the past. Um, you know, leads them to understand that actually, well, actually, you know, kind of um, Greek and Roman doctors had some ideas, you know, they had some techniques that we don't have, you know, they, um, they dissected things, you know, something that had been, um, you know, almost stopped in, um, in the Middle Ages, be sort of began again, kind of, I think, 13, 15, 30, 25, the first kind of one in Italy, but, you know, to do those things, to, you know, um, to, to actually look at the human body, uh, to understand, you know, how it's made up, rather than simply looking at the text, you know, the realization that, well, actually, the Greeks and Romans, you know, particularly the Greeks, they did that. So that's what I mean by kind of, you know, um, an effort to be conservative can actually lead you in quite radical directions. And I think the kind of Renaissance is, is an example of that. I'm going to be thinking about that for quite some time. The, that thought of uh, in an act to be conservative or an attempt to be conservative, you end up you know, becoming more radical. Uh, that's very, that's, that's very true. And uh, across a lot of time, I can, I can think of that's uh, that's very fascinating. Um, so I, I have a question. This is a follow up, and and uh, you might completely tear down my my question, and that's totally fine. Um, how much do you muse that the the Renaissance was uh, influenced by trade with the Arab world versus uh, the rediscovery of some of these texts in monasteries, or or at all, or was or is it mostly just like the like you said the monasteries and the kind of re re combing through of, of, of texts that were kind of lost or at least not as, as widespread or, or as uh, kind of the ideas transformed throughout into the society. It, it's got to be both things. Both things are true. 
So um, something like, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, Arabic numerals, which, um, you know, un undoubtedly uh, came from came from North Africa, came from Italian trading into North Africa. So, and, um, and you know, just, you know, as a merchant discovering that, you know, kind of, um, you know, if you've ever tried to do uh, long division using kind of Roman numerals, <laughs> you will realize what an immense boom kind of proper, uh, kind of, you know, Arabic numerals were. Um, and um, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff comes through um, um, Islamic Spain. So um, the, um, the kind of the Reconquista, the kind of, you know, Christian reconquest of the Arab states, um, um, you know, from basically the 11th century onwards, uh, once um, they kind of take Seville um, and Cordoba particularly, there are a lot of manuscripts there. Um, and a, a process of translation, um, it's already been translated from um, Greek into Arabic, and then it gets translated from Arabic back into Latin. Um, and so a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of stuff comes in that direction. Um, some stuff come, you know, comes from North Africa, particularly medical texts, which come from North Africa to Salerno, where the first um, kind of known European medical school is established. And then a whole bunch of Greek documents um, turn up um, at an opportune time in the mid 15th century when um, Constantinople falls um, to the Ottoman Turks. So um, a lot of, you know, the kind of refugees, um, the kind of Greek speaking refugees from there, you know, they, they got kind of effectively manuscripts in their baggage. Partly, um, I guess, it, you know, because it, it's actual um, kind of cultural currency. You know, if, you, if you, you know, turning up as a kind of refugee in kind of, you know, in Venice or Genoa, um, if you've got, you know, a bunch of Greek manuscripts, actually that kind of, you know, it increases your value, um, increases your ability to reestablish yourself. And so, you know, and they turn up there, you know, add to that, you know, there have always been sitting in the papal archives, sitting in kind of, you know, um, monasteries like Bobbio in kind of, you know, in southern Italy since, you know, probably been sat there since the sixth century that they've sat in a monastic library. They haven't been at the forefront. Nobody's destroyed them, but they haven't copied them because they didn't answer the particular kind of needs or requirements at the time. So, you know, these things, you know, these things all come together, but it's, I think only, you know, kind of, it's in really the mid 15th century that people really start um, in Italy deliberately looking um, for these things. I mean, there have been an immense thirst for them in Spain. Um, earlier on, there's been this big process of translation. And earlier in the Islamic world, um, in the kind of ninth century, a kind of, um, you know, a whole in a whole kind of house, kind of um, like a proto translation center was set up. Um, kind of Beit al-Hikmah, I think it was called, that was um, set up to um, translate documents from things like Aramaic or Syriac or Greek um, into Arabic because, you know, if there was a kind of knowledge renaissance happening, it was kind of in a way happening in the kind of Islamic world in, in the ninth century at the height of the Abbasid Caliphate. You know, there was a kind of immense thirst to know what these kind of particularly Greek um, manuscripts were saying. So, you know, they were preserved there and, you know, they survived and then they got transmitted. So, you know, things were coming from kind of all kinds of different directions. That's that's delightful to hear. I uh, it, I I challenged my uh, I had an interview in the first episode of the series actually, uh, where a friend of mine said that uh, the kind of the monasteries were the ones that really kind of uh, hold the most uh, weight in the in the Renaissance. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I think the Arab world plays in a pretty outsized hand. Um, I think, you know, um, um, I, I'm sure somebody has done an audit, and you know, if they haven't, it's about time you know that they did a, a count up basically of you know. You know the great, you know the great classical manuscripts, and um, you know where exactly, um, you know, do we have them from? You know, what what's what's the proportion? You know, you know I suspect if if um, you know if somebody did a tot up, it would be you know that um, it would be like you know something like you know up to a third is coming through Spain that way. You know, kind of a round about a third coming from 
kind of you know the Latin tradition in monasteries and you know at least a third coming um, through retransmission um, from the Arabic world and and you know and through Egypt as well particularly where you know a, you know a lot of stuff had survived just because of climatic reasons that the papyrus you know it it just does survive so. Um, you know, a lot, a lot that was not necessarily translated at the time was able to be recovered later. Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a great point. Um, something that I've been thinking a lot about since going further into Byzantium is how up until the Ottoman conquest, how much of the modern state of Turkey in that, that area was speaking Greek. And that was, that, that's something to me that I, I'm kind of thinking a lot about, especially in our modern contemporary times where we, we think that the borders between nation states is kind of set and we kind of accept that um, when the reality is, is that they're never really set. And it's always this kind of cultural and, you know, uh, economic and military line that's constantly, you know, shifting that we, we take for granted the stability of it right now. When, you know, for myself, you know, I, I've, I've never actually really spent time in Istanbul. I had a, a layover there uh, for a little while, so I didn't really get to see much, but I just kind of always perceived that area as, you know, more, more of the East, you know, than it was the West when really that's actually a more contemporary because I'm training myself to think more in, in, uh, in uh, thousands of years and millennia, as opposed to thinking of, of in hundreds of years, because really the arc of human history is probably better, better set that way. I mean, the, um, the, the territorial, the, you know, kind of extent of modern Turkey is, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's an object lesson in how cultures and transform and develop over time. I mean, you know, um, if you wanted to pick any one country and say, look, where can I get the kind of the largest span of time of things that I can actually safely, um, more or less now go and see, then, you know, Turkey would be it. You know, you've got, um, you know, heaps of um, kind of Greek remains um, kind of, you know, throughout the span of uh, Greek history, um, you know, you know, way back to kind of, you know, the, the mound of Troy, um, you know, in the southeast, you've got kind of, you know, um, a lot of early Christian um, stuff and kind of, you know, um, Syriac monasteries and so on. Um, you've got um, kind of Roman remains, you've got kind of um, everything through the kind of Islamic era into the kind of early, you know, the Seljuk Turks and the kind of Ottoman Turks. And, you know, in the east, you've got stuff going, um, you know, way further back. Um, kind of in you know right into the Bronze Age and um, Gobekli so, Tepe as well. Gobekli yeah, Tepe yeah, is yeah, which yeah, we don't know how old. Yeah, I kind of you know forgotten that briefly. You know, you've you know you know you know the first you know basically the, the first temple. You know, it's a kind of um, you know I haven't yet had the chance to see. It. I'm kind of dying to go there. Um, but you know, it it kind of defies the historical kind of narrative in that you know it's this immense sophisticated stone structure um, that predates um, that predates as far as I'm gonna, you know predates agriculture so you know like um, the, the kind of historical propaganda goes you know we get agriculture and then people start to build these things but you know that was there before you know um, how did they build it you know what were they thinking what kind of you know what kind of you know kind of mesolithic society sustained such an enormous effort so you know you know Turkey has kind of everything kind of encapsulated so it's a kind of, it, it's a great lesson in how things just change over, over the great arc of time you know you can't say that kind of one society is, is such and it's going to be like that for all time you know that, that's a kind of um it begins to be a kind of you know the idea of a kind of mono-ethnic kind of nation is the kind of more or less a 19th century one um and um you know the idea that the kind of the borders are fixed and forever is is something that you know in a desperate attempt to kind of avert warfare is a kind of you know it's a it's a 20th century kind of aspiration which turned out not not to be it entirely sustainable but you know you look further back and you see okay you know you know change is just always going to be the case sooner or later yeah and and so many of of the peoples i mean 
the UK is a great example of, of, you know, the intercultural mixing and, you know, like other people coming in and then dispersing or then leaving again. It's just everywhere is kind of always this, this kind of cocktail, if you will. Um, and Turkey is also, I mean, it's a great case study for a lot of things. Uh, Professor James Gelbin, he was on um, recently talking about Israel-Palestine and he made a really great point. And he's like, if you really want to have a case study in what a modern nation state is, just look at the founding of the modern state of Turkey um, and what they did to kind of create this nationalistic, you know, idea of what is Turkey and, and kind of, you know, going out through. Um, the thing about, what, just to go back to Gobekli Tepe really quick, the thing that really fascinates me, and if you ever get a chance to go there, please let me know, because I would be dying to hear your experience of it, um, is how the oldest, well, they don't know how old it is because they're not, they're intentionally not excavating all of it. They're being very intentional with it, but that some of the oldest structures are actually the best built and best uh, preserved, um, which is so shattering, like you said, of the narratives of how, how long have we been building these monolithic structures? How long have we been living in societies that could organize themselves to do this? It's, it's so fascinating. It's the, it's the sort of capacity to organize, which is so astonishing because you know, sometimes, um, you know, we make, um, you know, we make fallacious assumptions about the past that, you know, you know, people did not have kind of mental faculties or the ability to, you know, to do things that we can. Now, you know, clearly, you know, um, in the 11th millennium BC, they didn't have um, the internet, but, you know, they were capable of kind of, you know, organizing themselves on a scale which, you know, if, if you took 100 people at random now, you know, and told them, okay, I'd like you to build, uh, you know, I'd like you to build this immense megalithic structure, um, they would not be able to. So, you know, in, in, you know, in some ways we've become dependent on a lot, you know, in some ways kind of as individuals, you might even say that, you know, we've regressed in our ability to kind of to, to organize um, these feats. But, um, you know, the assumption that, you know, they could not, um, you know, is entirely fallacious. I mean, clearly, you know, you, you look at something that's been there for an awfully long time, you know, Stonehenge you know, in kind of southern UK. Now, um, the organizational ability, you know, to put, needed to put that together. I mean, we still don't know exactly how, you know, they got the cut of the stones. I mean, it's been established pretty recently without a shadow of a doubt which part of South Wales, you know, they, they came from. But exactly how they got them there, um, you know, is still something that people, you know, archaeologists and kind of, you know, kind of archaeotechnologists are kind of, you know, are really puzzling about that, you know, they had the ability to perform these as astonishing feats. And, you know, um, they talked about it, they planned it, they puzzled, um, they got it wrong perhaps the first time, and then they developed a better way to do it. But, you know, this kind of, you know, this, this kind of human urge, you know, to get together, probably in a competitive way, um, to kind of work out a solution to a problem. You know, it, it was it was always there. Yeah, and and aligning it with the stars too, right? Like yeah. that's the, I, I I I'm so fascinated by the fact. Well, I, I I muse a lot about the ancient world, and one of the things that I said in in, in an essay recently was. I think that there's a lot of lessons we can take from our collective past to help us understand and going through in the future. Because, you know, in the time that we're presently having this conversation, um, all the wonderful things that, you know, brought us the, the microchips and airwaves and radio that make it, you know, we're on pretty much other sides in the marble right now able to talk are also bringing with massive amounts of change to the ecosystem and, and all of that. Um, and we really have to try to figure out a way going forward. Um, 
And I think one of the ways to do that is actually by looking backwards um, and kind of understanding our place in, in this, in this rock. And I think one of the things that the ancient world did that maybe we see as a unnecessary novelty is looking at the stars, you know, and, and they obviously did it because from agriculture and needing to like actually understand when the plants, right. So we need to know when the summer solstice is and all of those things, because it had, you know, actual value. But in doing that, I think it kind of reminds us of our smallness in, in the world and perhaps in getting collective acts together to build things that are giant, like Stonehenge or go bike, go bike, or, um, you know, any of these ancient structures or even, you know, ones in, in the Americas is a reminder of we can do something that's great and grand, um, but also reminding of us of how incredibly small we are in the grand scape of let's not forget that we're pretty much on a giant spaceship, right? I mean, one of, you know, one of our great kind of human um, abilities is to, you know, transmit knowledge over kind of over, over time, you know, I mean, obviously kind of, you know, animals, they kind of, you know, they, they, they transmit kind of knowledge kind of in an, in an immediate way, you know, to their young, but one of our abilities is to do that um, over time. But, um, and even, you know, even more than that, we have, you know, the intellectual ability um, to um, ignore things, I'd say. Um, so, um, which is to say, you know, kind of, kind of most animals, you know, they see danger, they act upon it. So, um, you know, one of our kind of, you know, the, the, one of our human strengths and failings um, is our ability to see something and not act upon it. Um, and also, you know, our ability to um, agree that something which is not the case is true um, in order to allow us to circumvent a problem. Um, so, you know, um, we can agree that saber-toothed tiger is not there um, because it enables us to take another action which will enable us to dispose of the saber-toothed tiger, right? So um, this has enabled us to create great things, but it's also left us with this failing that, um, you know, everybody, you know, pretty much everybody really knows um, that if we carry on consuming resources the way that we are doing, in the way that we are doing, um, absent um, some other development, um, things are going to go very badly wrong. So we have, the, we have the capacity to know that and to ignore it, or we have the capacity to assume that because we solved a problem in the past, we're somehow going to solve a problem in the future, which is in some circumstances, you know, kind of stood as a society is kind of, you know, um, in great stead. Um, but, you know, what, what we need to do <laughs> is to go back to the, um, go back to the, yeah, there is this um, enormous and present danger and we need to do something about it. You know, we need, we need, this is what we need not to ignore because, you know, ignoring things, gets us places sometimes because you know we're kind of we're not kind of rooted to the spot um adopting exactly the same strategies as we, see we always have done in the past which may not work and we need to kind of we need to acknowledge this that's a really good point and uh another thing i'm going to ponder is our ability to ignore things and the benefits that that brings you know like uh there's numerous examples in history of, of facing a problem either with a, you know, a cultural friction, as I'll call it, where you're going up against another civilization or, or state or something like that and choosing to ignore some you know, part of it or piece of it, you know, kind of like your analogy with water again, allows you to flow in some other manner and, and, and find another avenue. Um, but it's also kind of a, a victim. We can become a victim of that own feature set itself. You know, it's, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It, may become, it can become a bug if you know, left to its own devices. I mean, it, it, you know, it's always enabled uh, and the most successful societies to um, 
kind of to be more kind of flexible and adaptive, which is to say, um, you know, um, kind of most animals, you know, they, they found a way to solve a particular problem and, you know, they'll keep on doing it. Maybe they got kind of, you know, um, two, two ways to solve it, but um, kind of, you know, humanity um, has the ability, okay, there are 11 different ways to solve this problem. Um, kind of one of them appears to be the best one, but we know it failed. Um, one of them appears to be really stupid, but let's try it anyway. And, you know, that, that may just be the thing that uh, kind of allows you to leap um, beyond everything else. I mean, you know, on the face of it, um, you know, if I describe the banking system as, okay, let's all pretend that we, that I have a lot of money I don't have, and you agree with it, and then I'm going to give you this money I don't have, and you're going to pay me more of it back. Um, now, kind of on the face of it, that sounds absurd, but actually... Um, if everybody agrees uh, with that, as long as nobody says at a certain point, hang on, I want all this non-existent money back, um, then it's got, it, work, you know, it works for everybody. So what on the face of it seems to be a kind of, you know, uh, kind of a maladaptive solution um, to a problem. You know, the obvious solution is just kind of stick with what you've got. It was enough. But actually kind of, you know, because, you know, because we have this kind of higher order ability to kind of pretend non-existent things like kind of, you know, you know, the belief in kind of, you know, um, supernatural forces, which, you know, okay, um, who knows, they may exist or not, but we can't be sure. So we're kind of, um, we're pretending or having faith, depending on your kind of, you know, your view on it, that they exist, but, you know, it creates a whole different kind of set of, you know, solutions um, to a problem by, by, you know, taking that point of view, which um, only humans are able to do. Right, right. And, and our, our imagination is, is an incredible so Felipe, again, he actually challenged me when I said that, you know, is imagination like a true, truly human thing? And he made a good point of like, no, that you know, predatory species probably have to have an imaginative faculty in order to be able to kind of run through some of the things they have to do, like tracking and stuff like that. They have to kind of conceptualize in order to, um, you know, go in and, and get, uh, get a kill. Um, but I, I definitely think, go, you want to comment on that, go ahead. They kind of, you know, the predators, you know, they have the algorithm, you know, which has been kind of honed by nature and it, you know, and, you know, and it, it kind of really, really, really works. Um, but, you know, what it doesn't do is um, decide to be something else completely different. You know, it's like, you know, um, my, you know, I've written an algorithm, you know, I don't know, kind of to solve some current financial conundrum and that's what it's going to do. You know, it, it's not going to tell, you know, it's not going to tell me, you know, what I should buy for my groceries. Um, so, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, the animal, it can be, you know, incredibly um, efficient um, in that way, but, you know, okay, there are no longer any zebras, you know, there are no longer, you know, anything that looks like a zebra. Um, so, you know, the line is not going to say, okay, what I'm going to do is start to kind of eat berries. Um, you know, it's going to starve, most likely. So, that you know, that's the difference with humans. You know, we don't necessarily have to, you know, we don't have the single algorithm. We don't have... Um, you know, which we can hone, you know, the line can get better uh, at, at what it does, you know, because evolution will push it in that way. You know, the ones who have a slightly better algorithm are going to breed more, more lions. Um, but, you know, we can, you know, we have the ability to say, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, I don't like this. Um, I'm going to plant, I'm going to plant maize instead. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, this kind of hunting wildebeest is no good. There aren't any anymore. I'm not going to sit down and starve. I'm going to do something else. And, you know, and that's the difference, you know, that's the imagination. It's not, imagination is not, you know, exactly, you know, conceiving all kind of future within certain bounds. It's thinking of something, 
you know, almost completely different. You're thinking, you know, what if I do something else? What's going to happen? You know, what actually if, um, you know, instead of being at the mercy of kind of it raining or not, what if I can pray to somebody and he'll stop it raining? Um, I can do that. You know, this is not something that, you know, a lion or a zebra is, is going to be able to do. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the bounds and, and ways we're able to make it modular, right. Which is, and really almost any of our faculties is the adaptability and, and, you know, malleable nature of, of anything from, uh, and, and going back to your point of, you know, uh, a lion can teach its young how to hunt, but you know, the lion isn't gonna, that grows up, isn't gonna all of a sudden go stumble upon something that's, you know, six generations back, that's going to be a useful piece of information. Right. And then be able to conceive how they use that in the, in in their, in their time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and now, um, you know, the great, one of the great challenges we have is that we've sort of, you know, we've compounded that even more, you know, possibly to the point at which we can no longer cope with it. Um, that, um, you know, throughout most of human uh, history, you know, a manageable quantity of knowledge was available to be passed on and to be built upon, you know, kind of, you know, steadily, sometimes in great leaps, but, you know, you know, certainly it's kind of said, you know, um, in, in 1650, um, you know, you could know pretty much everything there was to know, you know, in, in a lifetime, you could learn kind of all that was useful. Um, and now, you know, that, that's inconceivable in a sense, you know, kind of more data is, is more knowledge is being created every second than, than, than I could possibly um, process in a lifetime. And, you know, there's, there's a question of whether, you know, we've reached, um, the point at which, um, you know, we can't actually process or, or build upon that kind of amount of knowledge and data usefully. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, the answer is probably that we build, you know, a secondary level construct, which helps us to organize that so that we can then build upon it. Probably that's the adaptation because, you know, this is what humans do. Um, we're not terribly good at anything, um, but we're very good at making the kind of the best of what we have and kind of, you know, we're terribly good at finding an unlikely set of kind of historical and technological ingredients and doing something with it. So, you know, I, I kind of have, I have some faith that we will. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I worry about the uh, pace of, of all of that. Uh, that's something I personally worry about is the pace of the change and the pace of the information ex- overload and the pace of kind of needing to have these constructs. Um, Cause this is something, especially in t- being someone who works in tech and, um, has dabbled a lot in, in AI. Uh, the pace of information is, and the amount of data and the amount of, like you said, things to sort through is so astronomically large and it's, it's only getting bigger and more complicated every day um, that I wonder how much the tools that we're going to make, which I do think about this. And I do think that we, like here, let me, let me, uh, let me bracket for a second. Like there are, there's more information created almost every hour than there has been, you know, in all of history beforehand, which is awesome. Um, but that just means that there's more to sort through and being able to find value in, in this or that it becomes incredibly harder. Um, also being able to trust whatever it is that you are. So value and trust, right. Uh, is going to be harder. And to your point, you know, you can have an Isaac Newton or an Alexander von Humboldt and they could be multidisciplinary multiple dis- uh, discipline individuals who are just astoundingly creative and generative in, in multiple fields um, because of the fact that they kind of were at this sweet spot or Goldilocks, a, a nexus of information. Um, and, and I wonder what it's going to do to us going forward because at any, 
the paradox of our time is that it's never been easier to have such a greater access to information, but it's never been harder to find what it is that's valuable. But, you know, we do have the benefit um, today that, um, you know, in the past, you know, how many kind of Newtons or Humboldts were there, you know, kind of around, you know, with sufficient education and access, not an enormous number, you know, like, you know, perhaps there were, a, perhaps there were 20 or 50 or 100 potential Newtons of which one emerged. You know, now we have, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of, you know, kind of people who may potentially make that breakthrough um, discovery. So, yeah, there's a kind of, you know, there seems to be an infinite quantity of information, but, you know, there's an awful lot more people with access to it who may produce something. I mean, the problem is the pace, I think, um, that, you know, in the past, um, you know, we learned by making an awful lot of mistakes um, and, you know, what, what, something that seemed to be a mistake turned out to be work very well. Now, very often the stakes are kind of higher in a shorter time frame that um, we don't necessarily have um, the luxury of making, you know, a decade or a century's worth of mistakes in order to kind of evolve um, an answer to the problem, which is what was in the past that, you know, we may have a year or a month or kind of, you know, half an hour um, worst possible um, case. So, you know, that, that's the kind of, you know, the, the stakes are much higher on a shorter period of time. I, you know, I think that's, that's the worry um, that, you know, because as a, as a species, um, we're not necessarily given to making kind of, you know, enormous leaps in that shorter period of time. You know, we kind of like, we like to kind of reflect a bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I hope the listeners aren't uh, upset how many times I've brought this up, but uh, in Rousseau's first discourse, uh, he, I'm going to summarize one of the main points in it, and it's uh, technology almost always outpaces our morality to deal with it. Um, and that is something that I've, when I was first introduced to that is, is, is something I've never stopped thinking about because uh, I mean, you can think of what a chemistry set could have done, you know, 20 years ago versus what somebody can do with just going and looking up a video on YouTube, you know, uh, and, and to your point, just like, not just an individual's act of what they could do to, to, to kind of tinker or whatever, but, you know, at the scale of, of countries and corporations and kind of what they're able to do to kind of have the laboratory of what can go right and what can go wrong. Um, it's always going to start with, well, I don't know, but let's try. And the kind of the, the pace to be able to like, you know, put the lid back on it and stamp it out versus, you know, learning something from it is, is getting all the more, uh, you know, thinner of a margin. And I think um, throughout time, you, it, it's a reasonable assumption um, that any piece of technology or any invention will be used. I mean, you know, one has to operate on that basis, um, you know, whoever uh, discovered it on the whole, you know, is, is not able to keep it a secret, even if they, you know, kind of acknowledge that, you know, it's kind of problematic. Um, so, you know, the, the first thing you have to do when you invent something is know how to counter it. You know, you, you're, you know, you already have a, you need to have a system to stop something being used if you need to stop it being used. And that, um, you know, this is the case with military technology in particular, you know, it required kind of, an immense, you know, diplomatic effort and will over decades to stop kind of a nuclear war between the kind of, you know, between the Soviet bloc um, and the kind of Western allies, you know, you know, and, and several times, you know, at least the Cuban Missile Crisis and once, you know, kind of as worryingly kind of in 1992-93, um, you know, it, it, you know, came within, you know, hours if not kind of minutes of a kind of nuclear holocaust and, but, you know, both, I mean, in that case, both sides really, really, really understood um, what the consequences would be, and frankly, um, the cost of backing down was 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 managed. Well, I mean, in one case, it never occurred, but in the case of Cuba missile, the, the, the cost of backing down was was managed 
enough that both sides didn't kind of lose too much um, face. Um, but you know, we we can't you know we can't be sure that you know that will will exist in the future. You know, when it comes to you know, um, particularly perhaps biological um, weapons, perhaps um, kind of, you know, weapon systems which are based kind of, you know, uh, in the atmosphere. You know, we, we, can't, be, we can't be sure um, that, you know, we will have the kind of the leadership um, and the time to stop that happening. So, you know, we, you know, we need to stick fail-safes in there, you know, to, to, to begin with. You know, the first thing on discovering something like this must be, you know, actually just because we can use this, Maybe we sh maybe we should just kind of you know put it back in Pandora's box if we can. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think a lot about genetics and the kind of genetic revolution that's I'm going to say silently because I don't think it's mainstream enough for people to realize like just what is happening there. Um, you know, to the to the point of you know I, I, the one the, the example that I always use because it's kind of banal and 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 uh, sedated enough to not really scare anybody, but that's, you, you can get an injection that changes your eye color. Like that's something that's going to be very possible. And it's, it's, it's actually not that far away. Um, and something to your point of, you know, the stakes of the Cuban missile crisis and, and numerous other examples where there was actually orders that were given to, you know, launch missiles, but it turned out to be, you know, weather or birds or something like that, that it, it was mistaken. And, and the individuals just didn't, didn't pull the trigger. Right. There's, there's numerous examples of that. Um, at least a handful that I can think of. But the the thought that I think of, back to my obsession with culture, is the individuals who kind of raised with that, you know, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, like that Kennedy was in World War II, like he saw what the horrors were and he understood like the magnitude of what we're talking about here is so much greater than what he saw, which, you know, World War One. I, I was actually just talking about this with my wife uh, last night, the numbers that were coming back from the death tolls, you know, and some of these battles, especially in France and like the middle part of it is just so astounding at the time. They just couldn't believe it. Right. Um, and then it happens again, you know, in a different capacity in world war two, I, I worry how much of our, uh, another ongoing theme I bring up a lot is comfort. How much the individuals and leadership we have now are not even just learning the lessons of what you're saying of like going forward, we really need to make sure that we understand that when we, look, we discover something new, it's going to be a Pandora's box of conundrums that we're not going to see, you know, um, no things are, are all good or all bad. It's always just what it is and then what emerges out of it. Um, at least myself and my own personal, you know, thoughts and musings. I wonder, I, I, I genuinely am worried about if our leadership is able to even learn the lessons of the past and the technologies we currently have particularly with nuclear weapons, um, let alone these ones that are coming up with, you know, either genes or uh, really any number of uh, technologies that come from the AI is another great example of that as well. Yeah. I mean, one thing though that, that is striking is that um, the level of deaths from uh, military violence um, in the latter part of the 20th century and first part of the 21st century is, is actually much lower um, than it has been uh, possibly almost ever as, as a proportion of the kind of world population. That, um, you know, no kind of leaders in kind of at least democracies are kind of allergic to military casualties and, you know, and, and a good thing too. So, you know, we don't tend to get engaged in, you know, wars if we can possibly avoid it. And, you know, the level of casualties which are regarded as unacceptable three generations ago would have been regarded as almost, you know, trivial. You know, if, if you were talking about fighting a war, you know, in which the casualties are in the thousands, you know, 
people would have told you, well, you know, kind of that's how many people died dysentery even before we kind of fire a shot. You know, this is <laughs> this is an amazing achievement. So, you know, that's a you know, in a way, that's a positive thing. You know, however, um, the development of um, non-conventional kind of warfare, kind of you know, biological warfare, genetically modified kind of you know viruses. Um, you know, um, kind of catastrophic computer viruses, which will kind of destroy the infrastructure of, of a country with, you know, potentially absolutely catastrophic consequences. Those things which um, sometimes may be being developed in an effort to avoid conventional military casualties, you know, may result in an absolutely, you know, catastrophic uh, situation if it kind of completely shuts down uh, the health service um, of a country. I mean, you know, imagine a combined, you know, kind of like computer bomb with a genetically modified virus which hits a country at the same time you know you know the casualty figures could be absolutely you know kind of catastrophic and that could be, have been developed by a country which didn't want to invade it didn't want to suffer military casualties didn't want to fight a conventional war so you know um, it, it's going back to you know like trying to be conservative it ends up with being very radical in a way you know okay my problem is i want to preserve my manpower not suffer casualties so i'm going to do this in the, i'm going to do this thing innovative thing and that's going to result in something you know far more cataclysmic than actually i was seeking to avoid yeah no i was actually thinking as as you were as you were starting to say that the kind of a victim of our own success again right like we don't want to fight these conventional wars um something again that i i always try to remind myself just the kind of the the, the immense gratefulness i have for being born now is almost every war you know the majority of casualties weren't on the front lines they were from like you know like secondary secondary effects from starvation because no one really dies of starvation they die of dysentery or something else that gets them um or, you know, they got wounded slightly on the battlefield. You know, it wasn't a, a stab directly through the heart or something like that, but they, it was enough for them to get an infection. Like that was the majority of people that were dying. It wasn't necessarily from battles. There are obviously battles like, you know, the Battle of Cannae, where it's just like 70,000 people just die in one instant, which is, well, not an instant. It was really brutal. Um, where today we don't have that anymore, right? And like to your point, like, you know, 3,000 troops that were lost is almost table stakes in almost any other conflict where now it's like, no, yeah, five we're going to hear about, 10 we're going to hear about, you know, um, depending on, on the theater. Um, and it's almost breeding these other unconventional, like the one that I think a lot about is misinformation because that is like, there, there is a cold war happening right now and it's happening in an information war, which goes back to our point of how do you sort through it all um, and kind of the mechanisms of doing that. I mean, it's again, you know, um, with particularly that kind of information war and the kind of, you know, the, the fact that kind of, you know, um, tension between kind of, you know, what was the Western bloc and what was the kind of, you know, um, former Soviet bloc, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it's still there, it, it, it's ongoing and, you know, and, you know, and why wouldn't it be because, you know, th this competition absolutely has would, would never have gone away. It was a, a naive assumption to presume that we could, you know, just stick our feet up and, you know, kind of in, enjoy the peace dividend and everything would, would be lovely. But, you know, it's, it's part of this um, capacity to persuade ourselves that um, something which is, you know, patently not the case, you know, that, you know, if kind of rushes the saber-toothed tiger here, um, you know, you know it, it did not turn into a kind of, you know, beautiful, you know, kind of tortoiseshell cat or, or indeed kind of go away, you know, you know, it's still there. You know, it, it, it's still uh, a competitor. You know, the, you know, in the, in the kind of, in the brutal round of human history, you know, 
you you kind of you stop competing. You presume that you've reached the end point. You know, you presume you kind of in that way you've reached the end of history. You know, the end of history is the end of you, kind of as a nation. You know, that's it. The, the end of your history, it may be, but not the end of history, kind of globally. So yeah, I mean, these you know these struggles kind of still go on and they're still ongoing. And you know, and and in this case, if we ignore them, it will not be um, to our benefit. No, no, and it, it rarely it rarely is, I suppose. It, at least in the in the macro sense, that's a, that's that's interesting. It, it definitely ties back into the thought of uh, we. It, it's a feature to be able to ignore something, to be able to then go capitalize or you know take advantage of of another another area. But um, ultimately, that pendulum will swing right back around, and if you're not ready for it, it might just hit us right in the chest. Um, that's interesting. Um, I, I want to ask you a question about maps. So, uh, being an individual who's who's, who's studied a lot of it. Um, I want to ask you, uh, so a concept that I use a lot is, uh, the map is not the territory, right? So the map, a map in general, any, any map is really just a, a model of whatever region or, or geospace that you're looking at. Um, and you know, the, the culture or the, even just the individual, right? You can go to, to Vespucci or anything, any, any new other numerous examples of the individual has, uh, motives or maybe the culture in which the person is is drawing this map has motives and that's going to come through into the map itself um, and kind of uh, frame what the reference is. So my, my question that I want to kind of start this this next line of thought of is um, what have you seen as far as uh, in your studying of maps and, and global trade and kind of going from uh, a papyrus to bits um, in, in this evolution of, of maps and cultures? And is, is it something that um, shapes both two-way? So like the culture shapes the map and then the map goes back and shapes the culture? Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is a two-way thing. And um, to sort of go back even further into time with some of the things we've been talking about, that, you know, part of, um, you know, the kind of the human ability to kind of conceive of something different um, is the fact that, you know, a, another thing that, you know, we do and have always done is construct narratives and construct stories. I mean, you know, um, we see the world as a story, you know, we see the world, the story of, of what I did yesterday and the story of what I'm going to do today. And, um, you know, that story never really matches the reality of, of, of what went on, you know, for the practical reason that we can't do it second by second. And um, for the secondary reason that, you know, we remember things which are important to us, or indeed, uh, we remember and relate things that we believe are important to other people, um, you know, to put ourselves in the best possible light. Now, maps um, are in a way kind of a part of that. Maps are, um, you know, a visual story of the way in which we kind of relate um, to the world. Um, now, on a very simple level, it's, you know, the map is the story that we need to get around. Um, on a more complex level, um, the map may tell a different sort of story. The map may tell a story of, you know, the power of our particular nation. You know, we color it in this kind of delightful shade of you know, red or green to show, you know, this is British or, you know, in kind of modern kind of graphic technology, we may kind of build a cartogram, which, um, you know, has, uh, you know, the size of countries according to their kind of wealth or their population. And, and, and you know, and that's a story to, you know, you know, you put them side by side and you see, okay, those two things don't necessarily match, you know, which, you know, visually with a map tells a particular story. So, um, you know, so we, we kind of shape maps to tell a story that kind of either we want to tell um, or, or we want to tell 
to somebody else. So maps of, um, you know, you look at a map um, of the Balkans, say, um, I saw a, a kind of delightful one once, which kind of explained the, the kind of the impossible kind of situation which led to the kind of Yugoslav wars and tensions in the Balkans at the moment. It was a map which showed greater X. So it showed kind of, you know, greater Albania imposed upon greater Bulgaria imposed upon greater Romania. And, you know, these things overlapped. Um, so visually, you could see at once that, um, you know, without some compromise or indeed without some kind of modification of the kind of the historical or national narrative of the respective countries, um, there was never going to be a solution which was acceptable to all the countries in the region without them coming to blows or an external power coming in and, and kind of you know, and, and intervening. So those you know maps produced in kind of Hungary or Romania, which showed the kind of the maximal extent of the historic claims of those countries, were you know part of a narrative of either kind of you know, sometimes assertion, sometimes a narrative of you know even historical victimhood. Say kind of look you know, look what, look what we have lost, look what has been taken away from us in the case of, you know, a map of the Greater German Reich in you know, 1939, 1940. You know, it was, it was a, you know, an act of kind of, you know, of assertion, um, you know, kind of an act of kind of, you know, almost kind of visual aggression of that narrative saying, you know, this is, you know, this is, you know, Grosses Deutschland now, this is it. So, um, those maps can be, you know, they can be used for, you know, very political um, purposes and kind of, the sh you know, shaping, kind of um, exerting a culture, kind of dominating other cultures, you know, as well as that, um, you know, as well as that kind of pure storytelling. You look at kind of, you know, some of the very, very first maps, kind of, the kind of famous Babylonian world maps, kind of 600 BC, which has, you know, has Babylon in the center, of course, you know, kind of any good map has whoever we are, you know, Babylon, China, kind of, you know, Rwanda, Venezuela, Britain in the middle. Um, and, um, you know, it, it has some kind of, you know, towns which are satellites of Babylon, those are the important things. And then on the edge, it literally has kind of mythical beasts because, you know, hey, we don't know what's there, we don't care what's there really, but it's, it's bound to be something pretty unpleasant. That's interesting. I, I, I think a lot about, well, I have a lot of frustrations with the American education system, uh, which I won't even go into because I think just saying that is enough. Uh, but one of them is the Mercator, Mercator projection um, and kind of the, uh, I don't know if it's unintentional or intentional, perhaps at some point it was intentional. I'm not going to get conspiratorial or anything like that. Um, but kind of the, the mental model that it posits into people of the size of things, like the size of South America, the size of, of America, the size of Europe, uh, the size of, of Asia and Australia, all of these are, 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 are misconceptions that were, you know, helpful for, for trans, uh, transatlantic crossings and, you know, understanding the, the currents and all of that, but what it is unintentionally kind of posited into uh, us as a culture, speaking at least from Americans' uh, standpoint, is the relative sizing of, of geospaces um, which we then, uh, like to your point of, you know, overlaying a cartographic projection of GDP or population um, or wealth or trade or really any number of dimensions, like you can see like the, there's, you know, Europe will blow up or America will blow up or, you know, whatever it is. Um, oil is one that's is, it's commonly used is like oil uh, production and kind of use or, or carbon is another one. Um, so then we, we overlay this Mercator projection to it. And it gives us this kind of false sense of footing, if you will, um, of really what kind of the, the sheer immense in space of things. Um, I know my, myself, so I, I studied in Taipei. Um, and when I was there, the, the sheer span and space of, of China, because you can't be in Taiwan and not 
constantly be learning and understanding about China because of that very tenuous relationship there. Um, and the, the kind of shattering that it gave me, it was, well, one, like how immense, you know, the, the, the state of China is, you know, how diverse it is. Right. And, and, you know, that it really, well, they consider themselves the, the middle kingdom, right. To your point of kind of stamping it in the middle and, and kind of going out from there um, is how much that relationship, like, like that two-way relationship with the Mercator of this is the way we accept the world. And now we're going to kind of project out from it. Um, when in reality, it's, it's kind of, it's just a model. It's, it's to a, a point of ideas or, or wherever it is, it's, it's just useful until it's not anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, like you said, it, it's very useful if you're a 16th or 70th century navigator, you know, because it shows you the kind of, you know, the e equal distance on the map, equal distance you've got to kind of cross the ocean. It, it you know, it's, it serves a very specific purpose and, and, and that's, you know, why it was developed. So, you know, the, you know, the most dangerous kind of, you know, notions in mapping as in other um, things are ideas which have been taken up, transferred into another arena where actually, they're not very useful or kind of positively deceptive. Now, if they inculcate into you kind of, you know, a, a false sense of your importance um, in the world, um, that may work for a while, but, you know, eventually you're going to get a terrible shock. And, you know, this is, you know, the kind of terrible shock which kind of, you know, in North America or kind of in Europe, um, we are getting right now about our kind of relatively, kind of, our relative position in the kind of economic and political hierarchy in the world, which is, you know, not, um, not what it was. Um, there's a kind of almost a kind of historical Mercator projection which goes on as well in kind of educational systems, which is, you know, now, you know, naturally um, there's a tendency um, to learn about the history of your own country, you kind of at school. I mean, that's entirely natural. However, the kind of what you might term the historical Mercator projection um, is the assumption which can be given that that's the only history worth knowing about. And worse than that um, is the assumption that every everybody else is learning that same history and knowing about you and appreciating your point of view in exactly the same way. Now, kind of, you know, in Europe, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, get over this. You know, you, you know, you speak to somebody from France, you speak to somebody from Spain, you speak from some from Germany now, okay, what did they learn at school? They learned French history, they learned Spanish history, they learned Italian history. Now, you may at school have learned a bit about this and have a kind of appreciation, you know, the kind of historical engagement between Britain and Europe is much more intense over time than, you know, perhaps kind of ultra-nationalists here might, you know, kind of care to admit. But, you know, you, you take it further and, um, and you say, okay, so um, how much do I really know about Indian history? And how much do I really know about Chinese history um, in depth? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, okay, so people know that kind of India was kind of, you know, part of the British Empire, or mostly it was for kind of you know, a couple of centuries. But, you know, often that's as far as it goes. And, okay, look at a kind of, you know, primary economic competitor to the United States and to Europe is China. Now, um, in China, what people learn um, is, you know, Chinese history, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, that shapes the way they understand history, the way they look at the world. Um, and, you know, if you don't appreciate that, um, or, you know, worse than that, if you don't understand that, you know, where you know, the, the cultural forces which have shaped how they think about history, um, then you've got a big problem. You know, if you, if you assume um, that, you know, kind of your average Chinese school child has been brought up on kind of, you know, um, you know, why, um, you know, why the American, con how the American constitution was kind of developed, and, you know, why that was a great thing, or, you know, kind of um, what the origins of the US Civil War, war were, and kind of, you know, how that shaped kind of later 19th century in the United States. Um, 
then you know kind of you're utterly mistaken because you know they might do um, but they know an awful lot of other things and if you want to if you want to understand how they approach the world you've got to you know you've got to look at it um, from that way it's, it's you know it's not an easy thing to do not every school system I mean right no school system could cope with kind of giving kind of a constant diet of global history but some of it needs to be there yeah yeah no I I would love to live in a world where a lot more of, of it was there um, I would love to live in a world where, to be honest, where uh, history was kind of the forefront of an education system. Because I mean, I think you can learn about physics and chemistry and all of that with, with a historical footing. Um, as your point about China, and and also to your point about conservatism leading towards radicalism, um, I think China is a great example with both mapping and history. Because if you, so I've never actually been to mainland China, uh, but my language exchange partner, so I used to meet with. Uh, this one individual and, and I would spend some time speaking Chinese to him and he spent some time speaking English to me and we would kind of go back and forth. Um, and he studied uh, for a semester in China. And the most striking thing that I got from this one particular conversation that's, that's kind of set in, uh, set in stone in my head was him explaining that he saw a map and the map had China or had Taiwan as a state of China on it. Um, and he was talking with one of his other fellow classmates at university um, and he was, he was saying like how he found that amusing and he's like, well, what's amusing about it? And he's like, well, Taiwan is not a part of China. And he's like, yes, it is. And, you know, this individual, you know, was going to get his doctorate at the university of Beijing. And he was, is very, very lauded individual, very knowledgeable. Um, and my friend was, was having a hard time understanding how somebody who was so knowledgeable, um, could be so have such a, a cornerstone or such a piece of it as, as, as Taiwan not being part of China is, is, is there. And that the reasoning is, goes back to the conservative, um, you know, leading towards radicalism, because if they were perhaps to teach, uh, you know, ideas about how America became the constitution and the founding of that, you have to, well, you have to go back to the enlightenment and you, you probably have to get a dash of the Roman Republic in there. And then you have to understand about agrarian systems. And throughout doing all of this, perhaps you're going to have to open up the ideas of, of your own, place in the world and it kind of challenges the conservatism of whatever it is that this this organization is setting itself up to be um and it's it's interesting how that i i guess i'm going to be looking at this a lot differently because that conservatism of something is so simple as no we're going to color that space red um is actually projects back onto the people and then kind of perpetuates further um, where the kind of world that we're musing of, of living in going forward is one where instead of saying we're the middle kingdom and we're going to kind of go out in concentric circles until we get to the borders. And perhaps once we get past those borders, we're just going to explain the difficulties that we've had between, you know, this, this area and the next area um, kind of what, and what that leads to. I think Japan is a great example of that as well. Yeah. I mean, in, in the case of China, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating one because there's, you know, um, there's one school of thought which, which might say, okay, um, you know, China in the past, um, it fell behind because, you know, it, you know, it didn't. You know, it, it didn't need to develop the technologies which it had invented um, to prosper because you know it was always it was already prospering, uh, kind of you know economically, militarily. You know, okay, you know there were great kind of natural disasters, floods. There were, but you know, China was able to weather all of those. It, it, it had reached a point where you know it could cope with what it needed to cope with, and it, it you know it didn't need to do a lot of kind of extra. It didn't need to do too much stuff with the navi- with the kind of magnetic compass which they invented as well. And, um, you know, and now, you know, there's a, there's a school of thought which goes, okay, um, if, um, 
you kind of confine your way of thinking to one way. You know, if you try to be in, you know, forced conformism, um, then that can make you very, you know, very successful. There's, you know, there's a power in everybody thinking the same way because nobody pulls in a different way. Um, but just as kind of dictatorships tend ultimately to collapse because eventually that dictator will make a catastrophic error and there is no, you know, there's just no alternative. That's the way that it's going to be. That a kind of, you know, a political kind of intellectual monoculture, no matter how successful it is initially, um, runs the risk that it's going to come up against a problem that it actually has no plan B um, to cope with. And, you know, there's a possibility that that, you know, that's a, that China is replicating its success in the past in a, in a different way and actually facing the same sort of problem. Whereas the, you know, the apparently kind of, you know, chaotic and kind of disordered way in which the kind of the West kind of organizes its kind of economy, political thought, um, with lots of different kind of currents and struggling against each other, you know, might even, you know, continue to be successful in the future, precisely because actually, you know, we might come up against a problem where, you know, somebody's got the solution. Um, you know, there are 40, we're doing 45 different things. Seems to be chaotic, but one of those ways is the way. You know, if, um, if China chooses to just do one thing, um, then, you know, just like growing only, you know, corn or something, you know, if, if you get that one beetle that eats it all, then you're done for. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. Um, I, I study a lot of uh, um, tribal North and South American uh, uh, peoples. And one of the ones that I was, when I was coming across, uh, I think it was an Inca, it was Inca. Um, and it was like taking an example of an Incan farmer and it was saying that, you know, they would grow, they would specialize by uh, crop. So it'd be like, what, you know, I'm just a potato farmer. But in the way that we think about it from uh, traditional kind of like modern farming is like, oh, that's one potato variety. And so no, 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 that he'd be one potato farmer, but he would grow 200 varieties of, of potatoes. Um, where, you know, in Ireland during the potato famine, it was mostly one variety. So you get blight in one and it kind of catches and goes throughout all of them where, you know, they were much more, um, insulated from that type of thing, which is the exact reason that they did that, um, which is your point with, you know, the West and, or I guess, traditional West and, and kind of the uh, liberalism and ideas therein. Yeah. And, you know, in an old sort of way, um, you know, they would be, you know, they were trying to be cautious, but they ended up in a way being actually quite radical, having 200 different types of potatoes instead of one, you know, so it seems on the face of it, it's like, hey guys, you know, you could grow a whole lot more potatoes um, if you just grew one, but it's just like then, you know, eventually something's going to come across and is going to wipe us out like it, you know, happens unfortunately um, in Ireland. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, I think there's truth. Uh, I think truth as well as knowledge and wisdom uh, exist a lot in paradox. And I think that's another great example where it's like, you know, you think you're being conservative in, in growing all of these ones, but you're actually being quite radical. And by doing that, you're actually, you know, saving yourself from a lot of potential uh, suffering down the line. And, you know, you, um, again, for our kind of human history, you know, you, you put, you know, two apparently kind of, you know, opposite things together, which shouldn't work together, then, you know, actually, they don't necessarily cancel each other out, you know, something kind of new may, you know, kind of emerge, you know, from that. So, you know, I don't know, um, the kind of, actually, the, the, the tension between kind of, you know, liberalism and conservatism um, in traditional kind of, you know, democratic society, they, um, they don't necessarily, you know, just cancel each other out, but actually, um, they, 
they kind of struggle with each other to kind of you know one to kind of temporarily get an advantage over the other um you know produces ways around um kind of problems which you know which if there was any one kind of way forward um would, would not have emerged so could they kind of like you know the mixed social democratic systems which kind of evolved in um europe after the, the second world war kind of you know um kind of you know hybrid healthcare systems which kind of evolved in kind of europe after the second world war you know those things would not have evolved um without that kind of tension between kind of you know um liberal and, and socialist views about um how things should have been done yeah, yeah, and the pendulum kind of keeps swinging today. And, and I think right now we're in a moment where it's it's quite tenuous because of, I think once again, because of the pace of uh, information and uh, decadence is the word I want to use, right? It's just kind of in- increasing and becoming more and more widespread. Um, it's, it's a very interesting time because we'll, we'll see where it ends up. But I, I think you're right. I think the, the course of human history, I'm not one to say that it always moves forward and it always progresses because I, I think there's too many examples where it doesn't. Um, but I, I'm I'm very hopeful and, and have a lot of faith that this is kind of something new is going to come out of this. That some type of mixed hybrid uh, something that we, I can't even conceptualize. Um, it, it's quite it, it's exciting as it is kind of terrifying at times. Yeah, I mean, with um, you know the political situation that you know kind of we find ourselves in today, um, that's you know it, it sort of comes out of the um, a kind of new strategy in which kind of you know political parties and individual leaders have kind of you know maybe reverted to or kind of rediscovered, which is actually we could just win completely and permanently and forever. And actually, wouldn't it be great if there was no opposition at all? It was crushed, dissolved, you know, disappeared. And, um, you know, actually, um, that's a really bad idea. You know, it's a really bad idea on kind of many different levels. One level is, well, you know, if the other side has that idea, they might be the ones which win, in which case our ideas will dissolve, you know, completely. And it's, you know, it's also a really bad idea because, you know, currently with the kind of, you know, the alternation of powers, which was kind of accepted by kind of all mainstream political parties, you know, kind of in modern democratic era, um, you only lose for a bit. Um, so um, you've actually got a stake in kind of assisting the other guys once they've won, you know, with constructive opposition. So they get some, they get some of their agenda in return for the fact that you know that, you know, your day will come. Um, once that bargain breaks down, then, you know, the tension rises, you know, the possibility ultimately of real political violence um, in a system kind of grows. And, um, you know, the possibility that, you know, by trying to win completely, what the end result may be that you will lose completely, which, you know, that, you know, that wasn't in the game um, before, you know, and it begins to be in the game now. So it's, you know, it's one of these things, that, you know, let's not press the big red button um, because, you know, the consequences of this may be not what we may expect. Yeah. Which I, I often, I often find that I, I may come across as like, a, I'm going to use a stereotypical uh, tree hugging hippie. Um, but I, I really think like leading with love, kindness, understanding, compassion, empathy, like these, this is, this is what's needed, not because of, like if I want to really look at this, like I'm playing a game, right? Like let's, let's, let's be very John Nash about it and lay it out as a board. Um, the best thing, if my, if my aim is to reduce suffering and, and increase stability, it's not to win outright, right? Like that's, that's not the best hand to take. The best hand to take is actually be compassionate, try to understand, have negotiate and have reason. Um, because if you do try, like you said, stamp out your, your competition, what you're going to ultimately lead is either, a power vacuum and it's going to create a hydra of many, a many different, you know, conundrums unfolding throughout, throughout from that, or 
you're going to something's going to emerge out of the fact that now there's only one you know one point at the top and well that now we have one thing that we need to knock out and we can continue you know to kind of be the only game in town it, it leads if it's an ecosystem that is you know one species dominated or you know or anything it's always having more diversity more ideas more competition is going to be safer and and more prosperous in the long run yeah i mean, I mean again sort of you know kind of a, a defining aspect of, of human nature um is the you know the wish to struggle but you know only so much you know not take you know not take it to the end you know kind of like you know step back kind of live another day you know you kind of get it's not like kind of two lines fighting and kind of one of them wants to kill the other and that's going to be it so you know we kind of you know part of our ability to imagine is to think okay um actually you know there's a way i might win in the longer term by you know accepting losing right now you know i can i can you know i can kind of you know get my place in the hierarchy back again later on if i just survive to live another day right right and i keep going back to felipe but a lot of the things he said really stuck with me and one of them was uh comfort is the enemy of well-being and that's kind of you know we, we seek comfort we seek you know, uh, not having to be uncertain about things, right? And accepting a loss or ac- accepting a, a uh, um, t- to have to fight another day or something like that. Like that uncertainty is hard to live with. It's not comfortable. Um, but in doing so, it's actually probably better for our well-being, not just in the sense of uh, what you're saying, but also in the sense of what's going to come next and, and less instability, less turbulence. Yeah, and, you know, you know, put it another way, you know, the confidence in success is the kind of harbinger of failure, <laughs> really. Um, you know, the, the, the moment at which we're sure we've won is the moment we're bound to lose, almost, because, you know, it, it's, it's the moment we, we take our eye off kind of what even victory means. Um, you know, the moment that we think that, like, um, using all our resources to build kind of, you know, enormous statues which face out to the sea um, is the moment at which we stop even thinking about the fact that actually we're cutting down all the trees and, you know, we're going to leave we're going to have a societal collapse. We are so convinced this is the way and we've got the solution that we can stop, we can stop thinking about anything else. That's great. Were you plugging Easter Island there? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was wondering that. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that a lot as well. Um, the confidence and success that's we're, we're always swinging a pendulum of being, uh, stuck in a position we can't get out of getting out of it and then being overconfident that, that nothing else can kind of shake us again, I suppose. You know, um, you know, winning as in, you know, the process of winning is great, but having won is, is the moment you have to start really worrying about what's coming next. Yeah. Which is why like, you can go to like, I think athletics is a great, I, I, I like athletics a lot because that, well, one, uh, just like history, the truth is almost always stranger than fiction. Um, and two, because it is a game, right? Like it is, it is a set, you know, uh, of rules. And, you know, if it's basketball, you, you know, obviously your physical abilities give you, or, or just stature, give you certain, you know, uh, advantages, but then how you use that and, and kind of your mentality within that, it kind of comes out of it. Um, and one of the things you can see if it's the great conquerors or the great athletes of, of time is they're never, they're never happy with their success right? It's always, yeah, no, I'm just going to go back again. Like it, it, that was just a part of it. This, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. I got to keep improving. 
Hmm. I mean, you know, take um, you know one of the classic examples of this, which is always cited, is is, is you know is the Roman Empire, which um, it um, you know the Roman Republic. Uh, you know, expanded in a very particular way. You know, it was able to militarize a far greater proportion of its population than anybody else. And so, you know, it was able to field armies constantly, which nobody else had almost even thought of doing. Uh, you know, that led to too many armies and led to the civil wars, which kind of, you know, um, led to the establishment of the empire. And, you know, the, the way around that was actually, you know, to expand even further, you know, kind of more aggressively, um, you know, and you know, it was the point at which the empire reached its kind of you know natural geographic bounds, north of Britain, Rhine, Danube, kind of frontiers of uh, Persia in the east. You know that that was the moment really at which you they had to sort of begin thinking, okay, now we have to now we have to construct a system which will keep this stable. Um, and they didn't do it you know very consciously, but you know that that was the challenge that they were faced with. And you know, and that begins to be the kind of that's the that's the moment of danger. You know, if you've got, um, you know, the world's most kind of effective and terrifying fighting machine, you're probably going to keep on winning wars. But there's a moment at which the wars have to stop. And then that's the moment you have to think, OK, is the system that, that I have built adapted um, to maintain kind of more or less permanent peace? And, you know, and it, it was not. And, you know, it, it faced, you know, further challenges from the outside, which, you know, ultimately it, it was not able to cope with. Right, and and almost the uh, the forces from the outside took advantage of the successes, like the roads, to be able to get in so quickly, or you know the the networks and kind of, or even just the the increasingly uh, Germanized uh, army that they had. Um, so I wanted to ask you this actually. Um, you one of the books that you wrote was going to the frontiers of of the former Roman Empire and kind of seeing it in modern day. Um, I. I just really broadly, how was that experience? Like, how was it like standing there and thinking back and how much has changed in that spot? Um, you know, it was an absolutely amazing experience. I, I, I didn't do it all, you know, all in one go, but it was something like a total of seven months, you know, I think 220 days, I kind of counted it up. And it was, I think, 23 different countries um, sort of looking at kind of Roman sites on the front. So, you know, it was absolutely astonishing. And, you know, it gave a real kind of physicality to the idea of the kind of vastness of the Roman Empire actually kind of, you know, um, going to all of those places, you know, like, you know, right in the south of Algeria, the kind of eastern desert of Egypt, kind of eastern Turkey, you know, kind of right along the Rhine and the Danube, you know, it was just kind of, and, and to see that kind of Rome had projected um, its power, kind of, you know, um, and rule that area with the kind of, you know, the um, kind of the military technology, the kind of, you know, the governmental kind of machinery that it had at the time was still able to keep that as some kind of coherent whole was, you know, it, it made one understand what an absolutely astonishing achievement that it really was. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, I think a lot about, um, I think Caesar's conquest of, of Gaul and uh, the kind of Celtic Holocaust and, and all of that that kind of came from that is really interesting because, well, obviously it's a political writing that he did. Um, but one of the couple of things that stood out to me when, I, when I've read it is his description of, of the uh, toga wearing Gauls and how yeah. there was like, you know, there's this part of the uh, um, Gallic uh, tribe that was starting to become Romanized, right? So they drank a lot more wine. They, they started um, wearing togas, like I was insinuating. And then you kind of go to the frontier past them. And now all of a sudden they're wearing more plaid. They're, you know, very... Uh, uh, wild in a, in a sense. Um, and what it kind of put into perspective to me was 
well, if you go to the Roman Empire, because it, there's a huge shift once it becomes, you know, a, a Christian empire and, and, and Byzantium and all that is how they were, they, they, I don't know if accepting is the right word, tolerating of, you know, whatever it is that you wanted to do in your, your kind of cultural practices, as long as you accept the, the kind of general state that's an apparatus that's above you. Um, but from that, this multi, multicultural set of, of of peoples and frontiers and the kind of the friction they're in and, you know, and, and Caesar going over the Rhine just to, to kind of like dip into the Gallic, you know, land and just, or not the, that would be dramatic land and just kind of the awe, honest of it and his, his general fear of what that was. And um, what it did and what always puts in perspective to me is, you know, this one ancient peoples that had no way faster than a horse, right? That an in- individual on a horse, which means you're probably not going to have that much information traveling at any given go, was able to have this multicultural apparatus that stretched from the, you know, all and all areas of the Mediterranean is is fascinating. And and I, I'm I'm going to read your book. It's on my queue because I would love to hear what that was like to be able to kind of traverse it and look back and especially with your depth of history. Um and having that all sink in because, I mean, I, I pine about the Roman Empire all the time. And partly because I, I as an American, I, I feel like I have to know a lot about it. But even as you know, an individual that's in a world that's kind of the, the result of a lot of European economic ties, it almost all goes back to that. And it's, it's so fascinating. It had to be an incredible experience. Yeah, I mean, with the um, with the traveling at the speed of a horse, some, something you have to bear in mind is, you know, if um, the Romans kind of did this leveraging that, you know, it's it's not one guy on a horse traveling, so you know, it's staging posts. So you know, along the kind of roads, they have this thing called the cursus publicus, which is kind of public um, post system for um, the administration. So you know, one dispatch rider would hand the message on to the next. So things actually, you know, they they traveled at, at the maximum speed a horse could go without pause because it was it was different um, it was different horses, um, but with um well, you know with the Gauls and the togas um you know um that piece goes on to say that basically you know um, the Gauls they you know they took on togas they took on um, drinking wine basically you know without realizing it they enslaved themselves um, so um, you know they you know they became dependent upon Roman ways and therefore unlikely to uh, you know struggle against them they, they accepted political servitude, um, you know, in exchange for this, you know, very comfortable way of life. I mean, you know, the elites in southern Britain, for sure, even before the Roman conquest, had imported Roman luxury goods, you know, they as elites everywhere, you know, they're kind of, a great drinking vessel was the equivalent of a kind of super yacht, you know, kind of at, at that time, it was, you know, something very desirable, and you kind of, you bought into the kind of, you know, cultural ideals of society, um, you know, from, from which you were um, buying it. So, you know, that was, part of kind of knitting um, the empire together. You know, it, it, it was kind of, it, it made it worth their while. You know, they wanted to be that. I mean, it was, you know, it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a bit like the kind of, you know, the export of kind of, you know, American kind of, you know, cultural and economic artifacts that, you know, in a way that kind of, you know, togas kind of, togas were the kind of like blue jeans of the ancient world. They were kind of, you know, they were a symbol, they were a desirable thing, but, you know, they, they weren't just the item. You know, they carried a kind of, you know, a weight and a kind of implication that you were, you, you know, you, you weren't exactly Roman, no more than, you know, kind of, it makes you American wearing a pair of jeans, but, you know, it kind of ties you into a kind of cultural network. And, and that's what it all did, you know, kind of Roman baths, kind of, you know, Roman roads, kind of, you know, more comfortable towns, peace, um, kind of an, an end to the kind of, you know, constant intertribal warfare. You know, those were all great things. And, 
those were all things which, you know, if you questioned it for a moment, you might think, well, you know, you know, what was this liberty that we had before? You know, this, this, this stuff is much more kind of valuable. It means more. It, it enables us to live a comfortable life. And, you know, and, and even better than that, um, the Romans don't insist that the local elites disappear. They don't, you know, they don't globally and as a rule impose their own people. Yeah, sure. During the kind of early empire, you know, there's a governor, there's a procurator, there's a very small kind of apparatus, and there's the military for sure. But you know, they don't come into every kind of small town and say, you know, we're dispossessing you completely. You know, they let the local elites wear togas, become part of the system, and carry on much as they were before. I'm I'm very happy that you brought it with the blue jeans and the togas because I was gonna I was gonna uh, posit that to you or at least try to lead that laid it down that way because yes I, I yes that's such a great distinction and I, that's derives directly to the point of why i think as an american it's important to to look back at rome because i think intentionally or unintentionally the founding of america and um, i have plans to to write a little bit about this uh was intentionally drawing from the roman republic and the more that i read about the roman republic the more that i understand why that was actually a really good idea um they even had um they even had a version of the electoral college um, almost for their elections. I mean, you know, it was actually, you know, it really was a rigged one because, you know, the, you know, the the rich um, groups had uh, kind of had more votes and they voted first. So um, the kind of, you know, the the guys at the bottom in the lower socioeconomic groups, actually, um, although they were there on the parade ground ready to vote, they never really got to vote. So it's the, it's the exact analogy of kind of swing states, you know, that um, actually most of them didn't really matter. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's. Um... My friend who was on the first episode, Rowan, uh, we were going back and forth about the, the Roman Empire once. Um, and I said, you know, one of the things that I find most useful of it is I take any, um, any governmental policy and I try to find its analog in the Roman Republic. But the great thing about the, you know, the Roman Empire Republic or you know, either of those epochs, but the great thing is being able to look backwards is, well, one, you got to be cautious of not trying to make too much of a distinction. Just like the map is, the map is not the territory, the analog is just a model, right? but you get to see how that kind of plays out over time, right? Like the one, the example I used then, and I'll kind of bring it up again now is the, is the bread dole, right? The grain dole. Like it, it starts as this, like, you know, like let's, it starts a lot because of it being the victim of its own success, right? Like we conquered all this land. Now we have more affluence. Well, we also have all these slaves that we imported, which means farms are no longer, you know, small family lands. They're, they're larger and larger holdings, um, which means people keep coming into the cities for more economic uh, opportunities, which then kind of leads, leads this economic stratification and, and the, the solution of which is, well, let's, let's give people bread, um, which seems one of, of virtue, which is definitely, you know, a, a Roman uh, ethic. But what it leads to is all these really interesting riots and pushbacks um, back into the state. And, and you know, th- seeing that throughout the course of time um, is really interesting. Um, but to your point of, you know, Romans saying, we're going to come in, we're, we're not going to I wouldn't say they accepted their culture, but they tolerated it so long as you pay your taxes, um, give your you know allotment of, of people into the military, and you know eventually through that you'll start wearing togas and all of that um, is a very similar analog to globalization now, right? Which is you know look at this economic system of finance that you're going to have access to, um, and then through you know through communication, that's that's it's all speak English. And then, you know, through all of that, you almost see this, this unintentional accepting, accepting of these systems, even if these systems in, in some way aren't necessarily benefiting uh, the, the, the majority, but only those potentially at the top, right? 
And the Ro I mean, the Romans even um, complained about their kind of balance of payments crisis that, um, you know, there were kind of threats about, you know, the amount of Roman silver, which was going east to pay for the silk, which was, you know, ultimately coming um, from China. And, and, you know, that kind of Roman kind of, you know, ladies, kind of aristocratic ladies just love silk dresses. And, you know, they were, you know, apart from this kind of, you know, desire to return to kind of, you know, original Roman morals when nobody would wear such a thing. But, you know, there was the worry, actual worries and, you know, an awareness that it, you know, it might actually, you know, it might actually matter, you know, um, it, it's a bit kind of mercantilist kind of, you know, and a bit crude, but kind of, you know, the beginnings of an understanding of kind of, you know, kind of economic flows and and the beginning of the understanding of trade flows and where things came from and, and what it meant. Um, so kind of, all, like I say, kind of almost, almost anything that we fret about today, um, the Romans had begun in some way to worry about and to write about um, at the time, which was, you know, in a way, why, you know, the, the, going back to kind of right at the beginning of our conversation, the rediscovery of Roman manuscripts was kind of, you know, it was kind of revolutionary to kind of think, well, actually, um, they were talking, they were kind of thinking about these things. Um, and, you know, to me, something that's kind of quite extraordinary is, um, you know, the political graffiti, um, you know, in Pompeii, you know, that, you know, that, that survived, that, you know, it was preserved entirely by chance because of the volcanic eruption. We would, we would not know really about it. I mean, there were, there were accounts of the violence of elections in, in very late Republican Rome, but, you know, the physical survival of kind of electoral, electoral slow, you know, vote Metellus, the other guy is a, you know, is a rogue kind of thing, you know, actually daubed on the walls kind of, you know, makes you think, you know, actually, um, you know, there were elections, not exactly as we know them, but, you know, there were elections in which somebody really thought they had to canvas and, and persuade enough people um, to vote for them. You know, they really happened. And, you know, this, you know, you're talking kind of, you know, in the 60s, 70s BC, this is, you know, kind of by now over, over 2000 years ago is a kind of, you know, it's an extraordinary thought. And, um, you know, taking it even further back, um, you know, it's an extraordinary thought that, um, you know, Athenian democracy, obviously, is kind of, you know, it, it's very different um, um, from our own. Um, but um, the process, which, you know, um, kind of, to be honest, it's something we might consider um, reintroducing today of ostracism, um, kind of in Athenian democracy, by which as long as 6,000 people at the assembly were present to cast their votes, um, a politician, anybody, could be exiled from Athens for 10 years, and that was it. They just had to go, no questions asked. And, you know, they, they wrote the names on pots and they kind of you know, piled them up and then counted them. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, that society could have come up with this safety valve in, within its democracy when, you know, when tensions became too unbearable to just get rid of somebody in that way. Is, you know, it's extraordinary that that society, you know, two and a half thousand years ago had kind of evolved that strategy and could carry it out um, without concomitant violence, you know, you know, can you imagine now, I mean, you know, you know, pick whichever politician you choose, and, uh, you know, if the question was, sh should they be, should they be exiled from America for 10 years, it requires 50.1% and they're gone, can you imagine, you know, the violence that would erupt, um, and yet, you know, in ancient Athens, they were able to carry out this procedure, and, and, you know, there was not violence. Ancient Athens is uh, such a conundrum for me, to be honest. I have so such like uh, tensions when I think back on it. Because, okay, so to your point about uh, some of the, the the Pompeii, right? So like I love the graffiti at Pompeii. Um, I love a lot of the cultural artifacts because 
it fills in the gap, right? So I think once again, and I'm just going to say this because I, I really loathe the American education system. So I'm just going to hate on it a little bit. Um, in the way that history is presented to us, it's presented to us in a, this is a packaged way. We know everything go. When the reality is, is we know nothing. We know, we know, we know breadcrumbs. We don't know, we don't know what the, the bread looked like. We don't know what the crust looked like. We don't, we don't know what it tasted like. We, we just know what's left over in scraps, these tiny little fragments. So things like how was the, you know, what was the vernacular of Latin on the streets and how was it spoken? You know, was it, was it formal, informal? We have no idea, right? Like there's all these little things or like, you know, like you said, graffitis and what was the way people thought about it? All of that is lost. But in Pompeii, we get a little bit more of, of kind of that, uh, uh, that information. Um, and in losing it, we lose a lot of these other uh, dialogues or thought, right? So in Athens, um, like, I would love to know, like, why that was a useful system. Was it just because the culture was accepting of this as, as a thing? Um, and, and part of the reason that I have such tensions with Athens in particular is because if you asked me, like, I, I, I go through these philosophical questions where I ask myself something for just like a, to get to the root of, of, of an answer, just to kind of challenge my own thinking. And one of them that I'll ask myself is, if there's one individual that I could take and take all of their writings, and that's all I have on a desert island, and it's the only thing that leads me, to, you know, to whatever to ponder and thought, I almost always come back to Socrates. And it's because I think just some of the thoughts that he had of, of life and living and all of that, it, it, to me, it almost reads modern, right? Like, you know, like myself, like I, I love being an athlete. And one of his biggest things is, you know, you have to, you have to exercise because if you don't understand the bounds of your human body, you're not actually going to understand your mental and, and physical faculties. But yet he was, you know, uh, had to drink hemlock because he was kind of speaking radical ideas, which goes back to your, actually goes back to conservatism leading to more radicalism. Um, but why I, I mean, like I said, it's, these are all constructs and models, but, you know, I, I really want to know what led them to that, right? Like what led them to be accepting of the fact that, you know, they had to at the time, accept that he was one of the greatest philosophers or thinkers of, of their time. But yet they said, you're, you're such a challenge that we, we, you have to go away. But yet let his, uh, you know, students in Plato kind of continue to use him in a way, almost mocking the fact that they killed him by using him in his plays. Um, so it, it's interesting that you brought that up because of the tensions that I, I have with that. And also the we'll never know is, is kind of all summarized right there. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, he, um, they, you know, they tried or, you know, at least his friends kind of in his management, you know, they tried not to kill him. You know, so um, they wanted to make an example of him, but they didn't want to kill him. But he was, you know, he was determined not to play with their game. And, you know, the apology, you know, his kind of speech at the trial, you know, he's basically, you know, it's basically him pleading for the death sentence, more or less. You know, if you're going to find me guilty, just do the, do the whole thing. So that's, you know, you know, whether that's what he said. I mean, it, it's clearly unlikely he didn't say something like that, um, you know. You know, everything that, you know, kind of Plato passes on in the dialogue suggests this is the way that he thought, this is the way that he argued, whether, whether he indeed thought that they would take it to the, to the final degree. But, you know, he left them with no choice. But, it's, you know, he was, he was clearly, you know, an extraordinary and, you know, and potentially very destabilizing um, personality. And, um, you know, Athens at the time, you know, which kind of one has to kind of understand, had, had gone through, you know, a a terrible time and, and Athenian democracy with, um, you know, the defeat in the Peloponnesian War, um, actually um, the temporary suspension um, of democracy, the kind of um, establishment of, of, of a series of oligarchies, the kind of partial restoration of democracy. So 
um, you know, he was already kind of floating around in a society which um, um, had been very, very destabilized. So it was, you know, it was no wonder that, you know, this questioning both perturbed um, and, you know, and frustrated kind of, you know, in equal measure, those who either wanted some level of stability or just to, you know, to get things back um, to the way um, that they had been. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's a great point. Um, so we're, I want to be conscious of your time. So I think that's, that's a good place for us to kind of pause. Uh, is there anything else you would like to kind of add? And we'll take a moment after the recording, but if there's anything, um, well, we got it going. I, I don't think so. I, I, there, there's something which occurred to me, and I, I'm not entirely sure um, why, why, it occur, why it occurred to me. It'll, it'll, it'll come back. Yeah, it was about, you know, the, it was about the vernacular. Um, and, you know, we don't know what, you know, how people spoke and those things which are kind of, you know, missing. Um, and those are the kind of, you know, intriguing parts of history. But, um, you know, two things in North Africa, which kind of, you know, almost illustrate this and sort of illustrate both how kind of long-lasting things are and kind of how ephemeral. The long-lasting thing was um, that um, there are suggestions that, um, you know, like basically, okay, you know, North Africa is now kind of almost entirely Arabic speaking. And something about the kind of the Roman Empire that it kind of um, gives you pause for thought is that, um, it was, you know, until the seventh century in the Arab invasions, it was Latin speaking, that, you know, the whole of that area spoke, you know, the governmental kind of, um, kind of level spoke Latin. And there's, um, there are some indications that as late as the ninth or 10th century, um, there were Latin speaking villages in North Africa, you know, that late. Um, there were, you know, there are still Greek speaking uh, villages, um, you know, where the dialect in, in Southern Italy is Greek. And that's from the kind of Byzantine occupation. So these kind of, these cultural kind of, you know, fragments, they have kind of immensely long lasting. But the point about the vernacular that kind of just suddenly occurred to me that something very interesting that I saw um, when I went, I, I can't remember, I think it was in Libya, I think it was at Lectus Magna, and there was an inscription. And you know, in modern kind of Spanish, there's a kind of confusion between P and B, they're kind of, you know, almost the same. Um, but there, there was a, an inscription I came across where I think it's, um, um, it was something seven, so somebody who died seven years old, so it was septem. But the, the stone carver had written it with a beast, a very precise beast, Sebaten. So clearly, in North Africa there at the time, um, there was that same confusion between a P and a B because the local guy, the stone carver, heard somebody probably say, you know, kind of verbally, you know, I want you to say my little kind of Ioannis died, you know, age Septem. And um, he, you know, he wrote, the person said Sebaten because that's how you wrote it. And so the stone carver took him and phonetically and literally wrote that. So, you know, sometimes we can actually just get kind of, you know, glimpses into how the accent literally and, you know, intriguingly, you know, that PB confusion existed then. And, you know, who knows how that was transmitted, you know, maybe via Arabic, you know, kind of into modern Spanish and that sort of, you know, that kind of almost lisp kind of, you know, made its way across the centuries and kind of, you know, ended up in modern Spanish. Yeah, what a what a great example of how history evolves over time and its legacies are still here. And and I would argue its importance as well. So that that, that was the one thing which occurred to me. But I think um, I, you know, you I, I think we could probably speak for another three or four hours. <laughs> I would be delighted. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, you know, we, I think it's probably kind of closing up to wrap up time. I guess. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll pause it and we can wrap in a second, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. This was an incredibly fascinating and stimulating conversation. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, like all great conversations, you know, I kind of, I, I wish it could go on and on. <laughs> Myself as well. Well, thank you very much.